Mario, you've got a, a mall at Project Veritas. <laughs> we, we have to we have to find the mall. Um, good to have you, Mario. Good, good, uh, uh, good to be on. Yeah, no, uh, I just caught on to what Steve was saying. You know, you know, Steve is a friend, it appears. So you know, I'm not I'm not too worried here. <laughs> no, Steve is so, a big so, fan of you guys. Yeah, so no worries. There's a lot to uh, a lot to discuss that happened just today. So oh, great. there's I more. Think was... There's more updates today. Well, I mean, we just got our account back. Uh, we got it locked out for two hours, basically. On Twitter, but uh, why? Yeah. So what? What, yeah. what did you actually find out specifically? What that was for? I know you, you um, said it was related to the uh, release of the video of going yeah, after YouTube, I mean, Sky. I'm, I'm going to pull the email that we received from Twitter. And just we got several emails, you know, announcing separate things. The last one we got is here. I'm going to quote it to you. Hello, we have restored your account, and we apologize for any inconvenience this may have caused. Twitter takes reports of violations of the of Twitter rules very seriously. After reviewing your account, it looks like we made an error. Thanks, Twitter support. So they uh, make an error, and the and the reason and the video and they were um, talking about here is the uh, YouTube uh, interview where one of our journalists uh, met up with the YouTube executive, uh, the head of trust and safety there of YouTube, to ask him why our YouTube uh, video was taken down last week of the Pfizer video. So our our video was about tech censorship, and by the way, Instagram and Facebook took it down. This video t- today with the YouTube um, individual that got was taken down from uh, Instagram and Facebook, and then Twitter followed suit with this temporary account lock, and within hours uh, we we appealed immediately, and within very very quickly within here short hours we got the account back and an apology. So very all of this happened today. So I'm guessing that's one of the three things going on here. Either there were people that came in to report it through their normal reporting facility, or they had some AI methodology for when when that guy was, <laughs> as a in my opinion, it's kind of in a babyish manner saying you touched me, uh, or uh, I wonder if there's still this uh, connection in with CISA and so forth, and something came in there, and then some low-level employee approved the, the banning of it. Those are things that come through my mind, at least. Yeah, I mean, what I, you know, I want to know exactly, I don't know the details of how it happened. My immediate guess here, given of how quickly this was reversed, is that most likely once, once people started tagging Elon for an answer, he probably immediately said, reverse course on this, what's going on, and... I'm assuming here, I don't have any information beyond what, you know, all of you know, but if there's an individual at Twitter that went behind, you know, Elon's, uh, you know, way of operating and, and did it on his own without Elon's consent, I don't think that's impossible. So I wonder if, you know, that's what, what happened. And if Elon will look into who these uh, censors who still work at Twitter are, uh, it would be interesting. But um, I'll, I'll also say real quick, um, the journalist from Project Veritas who did was in the video speaking to the YouTube executive on the street is a speaker here, Christian Hartsog. So he lived through this. So let's see, here he is. Uh, so Christian, I... you, you spoke to who? Sorry, go ahead, man. Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say first, you got a bit of background noise, but I can still hear you. Who were you the one that was um, chasing the YouTube executive? I was watching that clip earlier, or was it another one? Yeah, that was me. And uh, ironically, I 
two years ago, next week, I think exactly uh, one week from today, is the two-year anniversary of when we got banned from when when Project Veritas we lost our YouTube account because uh, I confronted the VP, the Vice President of Integrity at Facebook um, and uh, YouTube because I confronted the Vice President of Integrity at Facebook at his home in Sunnyvale. Uh, Twitter took the liberty of pre-Elon Musk Twitter took the liberty of banning Project Veritas because they said we quote doxed him. So this is uh, not our first. Hold on, so so you got banned. So so just to get this clear. And by the way, I don't know if uh, Christian, if you can, your mic is. I know you got a lot of background. I just can get, get it closer to your mouth. That would help a lot. But just to get get it clear. So two years ago, you had your YouTube suspended because Twitter. you doxed Twitter. Oh, you had Twitter. Twitter suspended because you doxed an executive at Twitter. You went there and you started asking yeah. questions. I- yeah, so I can explain this. Uh, so we, did, so here's the whole story on that. So this is in, I believe, February of 2021. Uh, we had just broken a story on Facebook itself, where there's a, a, a leaked Facebook Zoom call between executives uh, discussing, uh, I believe, it was tr- the Trump ban from the platform, as well as you know how ecstatic they were about all the Biden policies. They love the equity stuff. They love the environmental policies. It was just. The, the big tech execs and Facebook just loving the, the, the Biden administration policies and discussing censorship ideas and things of that nature. I uh, got a lot of attention. Uh, the Telegraph even covered it because Sean Clegg, as you, many of you know, is uh, an Nick executive at, at Facebook. And he's, yeah, and, and he's also uh, Nick Clegg. You're right. Nick Clegg. You're right. Uh, he was uh, a politician in uh, Brit- British politics. So, you know, it, from there, you know, the story went was very big and Christian went to um, ask questions to one of the executives who was in our leaked video outside of his home, uh, which is totally normal practice in journalism. And the, it was totally you can watch the video. We still the video still out there of uh, totally fine uh, uh, conversation from Christian. He's very professional. And the excuse used by Twitter to take that video down and then ban the Project Veritas account permanently was that there was a, a lamp post in the video that you could see the number of the house, and they said that I was doxing. You could not see, by the way, that the street name. There was no identification of what city or what state that conversation was taking place in. The only identifying factor you could find was that lamp post house number for a brief second in the video, and they said that was doxing of private information, where you can see CNN videos out there of them doing the exact same thing with the uh, house number on it, and those videos were still let uh, allowed on on Twitter at the time. So it was completely obvious that they were targeting and trying to remove us from the platform. And no one, when you guys called them out, no one really did. Anyone care? Did anything come out of it? Um, I can answer that. Um, I mean, we obviously called it out. Um, we, we James O'Keefe still had his account active, so they only banned Project Veritas at that point in February of 2021. And, you know, obviously we, 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 we you know, were com- complaining about the outrage, how outrageous this situation was. And two months later, in April of 2021, when we broke a massive series on CNN, Charlie Chester, many people probably remember the CNN uh, technical director speaking about the propaganda 
happening inside CNN and how he literally works at CNN because they got Trump out of office. That's why he literally decided to work at CNN. His words, uh, the videos went viral that, that, um, the, that week. And within the end of the week, Twitter found a reason to say that James O'Keefe's account was uh, spamming and creating fake accounts under it. And they found a reason to ban James O'Keefe permanently. Um, so we were completely wiped off. Twitter this is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Like th- this is just such stupid business practice. Ignore ethics. This makes no business sense. This is how you kill a company. It makes no sense. Like eventually these things will catch up to you. Eventually people start leaving the platform when they know how this is being abused. They can wipe someone's entire existence on the web. Like people spend their life. Look how a lot of people spend a lot of their time on platforms like Twitter, wiping out their account. It's literally wiping out big. You know, I, I made that. I used that example before. I'd rather you lose some of my. You know, I'd rather not be allowed to go to some European or all of Europe than lose my web presence. That's ridiculous. Imagine a country doesn't like you and they just ban you from being able to enter that country. That's crazy. Um, and look at the difference now. It's worth re- look at the difference now. Go ahead, Christian. Uh, yeah, it's re- worth reemphasizing what uh, Mario said about about Nick Clegg. Apologies, I'm. Uh, getting interference but uh, oh, good, oh, good. yeah we can hear yeah uh yeah it's uh it's worth reemphasizing what mario said about nick clegg he was the deputy prime minister of the united kingdom prior to becoming the the i believe the head of global affairs at facebook so the, here's a guy who i don't even know that he was a u.s citizen um <clears throat> And he just years ago was the deputy prime minister of the United Kingdom, moves to Menlo Park, gets the biggest mansion in Menlo Park, and cuts off the communication between the president of the United States and the American people. And he wielded that power. And um, it's, it's also worth – I'd be remiss if I didn't know. I think Mario probably uh, mentioned this earlier is that Facebook has also also banned us, banned this videotape. Of of me confronting the um yeah yeah yep but you covered that yep yeah and then what's so interesting about all this to me is that uh, the way I mean the way these things are happening not only does it seem oriented these bands and stuff seem so and are obviously so oriented towards the conservative or what is perceived to be the conservative end of the political spectrum. Um, but it, the, the use of the rules that these social media companies have put into place are not only worded broadly enough to take anything in, they also are not applied based upon that perceived ideology or perceived uh, effect. Like if, if, if someone's even like you, you take a, a Barry Weiss or a Glenn Greenwald who are of the left, but, but still, if anything, they does accrues to the benefit of what these companies perceive to the right, then they take them on in certain ways. And so, you know, it, 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 any, it, it is clearly, it comes across pretty clearly as a broadly enough terms of service, Broadly enough worded terms of service, so you can draw anyone in that you want to for the more ultimate purpose of causing a certain political effect in the culture and in elections. I mean, it, it, it's really amazing when you consider the the scope and breadth of, of how they have that one focus, then that's entirely what it is. 
All right, so I'm going to kick off the discussion um, that everyone came in for. Um, I think we've got the audience in, we've got the speakers in. I would like, um, maybe Nick, you've got the clips ready. Um, can you give us an overview of what the videos reveal? And then I'd like Mario to elaborate on the, what those videos reveal. And then I would like the doctors to start digging into it and giving us their thoughts. Everyone has watched the video and I'd like Steve to go first after Nick and Mario to give us his thoughts and then we'll go to Eugene and Joanna uh, to give us his thoughts on what the what we've uh, uncovered in those videos. Um, I've I've listened to them as well. I've I've taken some points for my reference. But Nick, give us an overview. Sure, sure. Uh, I'll give a brief overview, and I'm sure uh, Mario will be able to. Other Mario, anyway, will be able to uh, elaborate on these a little bit more. Obviously, one of the biggest concerns about this video uh, were uh, Jordan Walker speaking about. Uh, moving beyond COVID, other uses for mRNA vaccines, like such as gene editing and oncology, and then actually went as far as saying that nobody at Pfizer, quote, gives a fuck about COVID anymore. Um, and and then we move on to a lot of the concerns that we, a lot of us had before. You know, we hear about this all the time. Uh, liability, whether or not Pfizer can actually have any liability for vaccine injuries and 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 as well as possible side effects. Uh, and they actually did end up in admitting, not publicly, obviously, that there are issues that are that are potentially arising with uh, female menstrual cycles. So I think that's that's our biggest takeaway here. Uh, and let's see, I got a bunch of notes here. But yeah, no, I would uh, I would really love to hear uh, a doctor's perspective on what they heard and if this this sounds realistic. Yeah, and I've got some points I'll read out from Robert Malone's space yesterday. For anyone that wasn't there, Robert Malone did a space with Project Veritas. I'm going to quote uh, three, three things he said. How vaccine affects reproductive health of women. Something irregular about the menstrual cycle affecting something hormonal. So that's quoted by uh, Dr. Malone. Another point, he, physicians are speculating that, that this reproductive behavior, the alteration being observed in humans might be driven by alterations in hypothalamic pituitary and general function, which he calls HPG um, functions. And then the last one, it's the first time he hears any acknowledgement from an official source at Pfizer, FDA, or the CDC, in this case Pfizer, that this um, high uh, HPG access might be damaged in the people that are experiencing these alterations in menstrual cycles. In brief, the vaccine could be impacting um, women's um, the, the female for, for female fertility. But Mario, I'll let you elaborate on this and then we'll go to Steve. Yeah, thank you, Mario. So I think the major points and takeaways that I got from this video was exactly the, the, the thought here is, you know, what the public is told, right, between the relationship between the big pharma and the FDA is that, you know, the, the FDA is confident that before something goes to market, that every all the risks have been assessed. Therefore, you know, this product is ready to go and be used by the public. What Walker seems to be saying is, you know, the obviously the vaccine's already in the market. And now, you know, with more and more data coming out, we're increasingly concerned about these different factors when it comes to women's health and menstrual cycles um, that, you know, could be affecting them. And, you know, the question that I've seen circulate the most is, you know, should should we not be more strict uh, when it comes to approving these things and before you know when something's already been used by i don't know hundreds of millions of people or maybe billions at this point and then later finding out these 
these, you know, effects, you know, what, how, how does that work for society, right? How can society have full faith in the products that they're consuming if, if, if that's the case? The other interesting factor I think here as well is he continuously kind of hits this mark of like, oh, it would be a huge scandal. Like, I really hope we don't find this out. I really hope it doesn't come out. Uh, I think he dropped out. Yeah, Mario dropped out. But I do want to say also, I want to correct something. I said HPG should be HPA, not HPG, which is hypothalamus, pituitary, and adrenal. So I've just been learning all this stuff before this this space. Mario, are you back? Are you back? Yeah, you're back. And then we'll go to Steve. Sorry about that. I don't know. I think I I was getting a call. That's why that happened. But it's really that thought process from Walker of like, you know, hey, uh, you know, we could really hit a scandal here. This could be a a really big problem. I really hope it doesn't come to what I'm thinking it's coming to. So my question on that is like, is this a genuine feeling from Walker where he genuinely is is concerned about the health of of the people that are consuming the vaccine? Or is this a concern for the company's bottom line that if more information is revealed that, you know, he's concerned might be true, um, that would be hurtful for the company's business and and uh, profit um, incentive, right? So that's, you know, a question. I don't know the answer to that, but those are the two major things that stuck out to me in this video. So, so Steve, uh, I definitely want your feedback on the video itself, but I also want to ask you what, because you've, you've been very vocal about these exact side effects for, you know, at least a year and a half now. So I, I also want your feedback on that too. Like, what led you to that? conclusion you seem to be more and more on the right path here um and so yeah uh, give me your overall thoughts so uh back in may um i attended a meeting with the uh, uh, ccca where uh, dr By- byron bridal uh he foiled the uh data from the japanese government and it was uh, pfizer's data on the biodistribution so we knew very early on that this, the lipid nanoparticles were targeting the ovaries, uh, especially. And it was like pretty shocking to see that. And that's what led to my contacting Brett uh, Weinstein and uh, uh, Robert Malone and I appeared on um, the Dark Horse podcast on June 10th. And we disclosed that uh, biodistribution data to millions of people in that podcast, which uh, YouTube then censored and then deplatformed uh, Brett for doing it. And Brett was willing to do it because it was super important that uh, we get that information out. So, you know, I, I really want to uh, thank him for, for sacrificing his revenue stream, which was very substantial um, in order to get that information out. So we knew, and of course, if we knew, Pfizer knew because it's Pfizer's own data. So they knew that it it went into the ovaries. And then what makes matters worse is, so I, and I had a conversation with the FDA commissioner at the time, which was Janet Woodcock. And I said, you know, Janet, th- this, these lipid nanoparticles are going everywhere. And she says, yeah, we know, but it's harmless. And uh, that's kind of not what Byram uh, was thinking at the time that it was harmless. Um, and so he was like super concerned and I tried to warn people and they all thought I was, uh, a whack job. And uh, so nobody was paying attention other than the millions of people who, who watched that video. But they had confirmation. Everybody had confirmation very early on in the VAERS system. Within the first month, 
the Vera system was lighting up like a Christmas tree with all of these menstrual issues um, uh, popping up as being super elevated. And so it was, for anyone who cared to look, it was so obvious uh, back then. And it was obvious when I looked, uh, which was months later, because I only, you know, got red-pilled um, sort of late. Um, uh, you know, basically, I, I got red-pilled on, on May 10th or so. And so, uh, uh, you know, it, everything fit together, right? The lipid nanoparticles uh, targeting the ovaries and women having menstrual problems showing up in pairs. In fact, the number one issue, the number one most elevated issue from all other vaccines or from a normal vaccines were, were, uh, were menstrual issues. It was like, you know, number one, number three, number five, number 10, number Steve, 15. Just a quick, no, Steve, quick just, question. Quick question to yeah. you, Steve. I'm just going through the quotes from the video. And I want to point out that he didn't say, so this is him speaking off the record and you'd expect him to kind of, you know, he even talked about potential gain of function research, which we covered in the last space. So he, he states the following, for example, there is a group of women who are having irregular irregularities in their menstrual cycle that, and that is concerning. So he's talking about a group of women, but he doesn't confirm that this is like, it's directly linked to the vaccine. Would you say the studies you're referring to, are they raising questions or are they enough to say there's a direct link between the vaccine and uh, HPA, um, what the, Dr. Malone was referring to yesterday? Is there a direct link that's been confirmed? Or there's just studies that show we should question it and look into it further? How far yeah. down that path are we? Yeah, so, you know, that kind of question always depends on, on who you ask and their opinion. In my opinion, as an, as an engineer, looking at data and looking at, at correlation, you know, you can say that correlation is in causality, but there's a five-pronged te five, uh, test uh, for what defines causality. And so causality is, is basically this Bradford Hill criteria. There are five criteria that apply for vaccination for causality of adverse events. And all five of these uh, criteria apply here. So... There has to be a biologic plausibility. It has to occur shortly after the event occurs. It has to occur regularly. If you increase the stimulus, if you have, uh, if you vaccinate more people, you're going to get more events. You know, so it satisfies every single criteria for causality. And the people that tell you, oh, there's, you know, it's just a signal. No, you can determine causality in VARES very easily. And so, so we knew by looking at the, the, the data that all the Bradford Hill criteria were satisfied. And so what this means is if people, uh, you know, women are re reporting heavy menstrual bleeding, they're reporting light menstrual bleeding, they're reporting periods that, that uh, uh, are starting to happen even though they passed menopause, they're reporting all sorts of stuff. And it's reflected in the um, uh, uh, women who are not being able to uh, give birth, right? The, you're seeing birth rates dramatically decline in uh, countries all over the world, and nobody has an explanation for that. So not only are you seeing, you know, the the evidence there, but you're also seeing the evidence in the declining birth rate, and that's that's pretty dis dispositive. I mean, I don't know how you can explain that. You know, so, if, if anyone wants to come on and, and explain how how the birth rates are declining by huge amounts in countries throughout the world. I'd love to hear it if it's not the vaccine. Yeah. So, so Dr. Gu, I do want to get you in here, and then uh, Dr. Joanna as well. 
Um, based on what uh, Steve just said and what you heard in the video itself, I, I kind of like your thoughts on that and see what you- see if your sentiment has changed. I guess since uh, you were a strong proponent of the vaccine before. Uh, last year, especially, and I do think you're you're still a proponent. Yeah, but I'm, is I'm, that are you becoming more skeptical now? Uh, that's a good question, Nick. No, I'm still a strong proponent of the vaccines, but I think in the case of um, how we treated the the menstrual cycle issue with the vaccines, all sides of the political aisles, on both the Republican, Democrat, or whatever independent side, everyone got things wrong with this. Um, because I know in the very beginning, I saw a lot of you know, med Twitter doctors talking about how there's no possible way that the menstrual cycle can be affected by the vaccines. And even though lots of women were sharing their stories about how their menstrual cycles were affected by it, uh, they were basically gaslit by doctors saying like, that's not, that's scientifically impossible. There's absolutely no way that your menstrual cycle can be affected. Um, And then it turns out, you know, there was a study by Dr. Allison Edelman at the, I think it was in the Oregon Health Science University, um, they, they looked at, I think, around 10,000 women and found out that, indeed, there is an association between this uh, menstrual cycle length uh, and getting vaccinated with, with co- uh, against COVID-19, right? I think they, they saw it was an average of one day delay in the menstrual cycle for women. So that's the evidence, right? The science said it is actually possible for the vaccines to affect your menstrual cycle. But the knee-jerk reaction for a lot of people that I would consider on my side, right, on the liberal side, who said, there's no possible way, you know, these vaccines have no effect whatsoever on your menstrual cycle. They weren't doing that based on evidence. They're doing that based on feelings and opinions and, and trying to support the narrative that the vaccines have absolutely zero side effects. Right? Yeah, so, so, Dr. Gu, let me, let, me, let me ask you one more question there, if you don't mind, because uh, uh, Steve did make an assertion that uh, the birth rates are declining and then, you know, uh, miscarriages are up. I don't know exactly the percentage, but that was mentioned. Is that anything you're seeing? Do you? So, so do that's you... what I mean by the other side. Of, you know, I always believe in the evidence, not the narrative. You have to look at the facts, not opinions, right? So far, based on all the studies out there, there is no evidence that the COVID-19 vaccines affect fertility rates. There is evidence that it affects the, the length of the menstrual cycle, right? So there's studies published on that. I believe the NIH even admitted that that is the case, right? But we are a society based on evidence, not opinions. Not, just because you want something to be true, doesn't make it true. You have to look at the facts, you have to look at the data, and you have to look at it objectively. And right now, based on all the studies out there and the strongest evidence, I don't see any evidence that the COVID-19 vaccines affect fertility rates. There is evidence that it affects the menstrual cycle, right? So, so, so we always have to be, you know, objective. Right. Uh, Dr. Joanna, jump in. Yeah. Hey, you guys. Um, I first I want to thank all the members of um, Project Veritas that are um, with us tonight. I think you guys do amazing work. And for the audience, um, just a little bit about my background. If um, you're new um, to the audience, I'm uh, an anesthesiologist and surgical intensivist in New York City. And uh, just to review this video um, that was submitted by Project Veritas, it discusses reproductive risk as it especially especially relates to a woman's menstrual cycle. And it really hones in on what's called the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis or HPG axis. Um, so for, first, just for everybody in the audience, I think it's really important to understand what is the hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis. 
um, before I kind of get into the, into the weeds here. Um, and I, I think most basically the HPG axis plays a critical role in the communication between the brain and our reproductive systems. And this is the case for both men and women. So deep in the brain, the hypothalamus releases uh, gonadotropin-releasing hormone, or GnRH, um, into circulation, and this causes the anterior pituitary gland to release either a luteinizing hormone or a follicle-stimulating hormone. Uh, and that acts on both the ovaries in women and also the testes in men. Um, that, in turn, secretes estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, respectively, um, depending on... Um, what uh, type of anatomy you have. Uh, now there's this suggestion that's been um, set forth that perhaps the virus and also the vaccine may each impact the length of a woman's menstrual cycle. Uh, and this may suggest a disturbance in that really important hormonal axis. So I, I think first we need to take a step back and look at the data um, as Eugene um, established. Um, so, so, um, not just looking at the words of Dr. Jordan Walker, who was in the, um, video that was submitted by Project Veritas, but also, um, looking at a large study that was actually published in September of 2022 by the British, uh, medical journal, um, that included 20,000 participants. Um, they were able to link the COVID vaccine to a temporary increase, at least, in the cycle length. Um, it, it increased uh, the menstrual cycle length by about four days um, for women who received two doses of the COVID vaccine. And this uh, larger study did confirm the findings of other studies. Um, and there was a separate paper that showed that about 42 percent of women um, had a heavier menstrual flow um, or cycle during um, this period as well. So. Um, the data is out there to support this. Um, you know, whether or not that's causal, I think, has yet to be determined. But what are the implications here? That's what's most important. Um, so for me, um, this kind of beckons the question, at what level is there interference with this hormonal access? Is this happening at the level of the hypothalamus, at the level of the ovary, um, and then what are the ramifications um, to reproductive fitness? So, Joanna, I've got, I've got a question for you, Joanna. And sure. I'm going to quote something directly from the video. Spice, sure. and, uh, Aaron, Spice, Brian, I've sent you all invites to come up. Uh, mm -hmm. But I'll go, I'll go to the quote that I want to refer to. It says, uh, Jordan says the following. There is something happening, but we don't know what it is. So my question here is, how common is this for... A, a, a drug manufacturer to find problems but not understand them and is that enough to be concerned or it just means that more questions need to be asked how concerned are you when you see something like this when you when you hear and say something like this and is Pfizer meant to disclose such information not sure if you can answer the second question maybe Anish could take that one right after but go ahead Joanna yeah, no, I think that these present some really significant questions um, we have to remember just Normally, um, when it comes to uh, clinical trials, we're looking on the scale of about 10 years. Um, so longitudinally, um, when we consider uh, Operation Warp Speed and the just the um, expediency behind 
uh, what drove these, these vaccines and, and this technology. Um, I think it becomes incredibly relevant. And uh, at this point, um, for those who are vaccine injured, um, especially, and, and, um, I've been listening, um, to a number of podcasts, including, um, Dr. James Thorpe. I don't know if you're able to get a hold of him or not, but he's actually an OBGYN who has some incredible insights on this. I think that we need to start asking these questions at the very least, um, to decipher what belies, um, uh, what's, what's going on here. And Mario, so, uh, just to yeah, add to her jumping point. Yeah, so if we think about the landscape that we find ourselves in right now, in, in, in bioethics, one of the things that we, we would typically default to is this precautionary principle. And basically, it just says when human activities potentially lead to morally unacceptable harm that's typically plausible but uncertain, you should take actions to avoid or diminish that harm. So I think that when you're talking about something that has the kind of stakes that we're talking about, if there's a scientifically plausible but uncertain, so we, we may not have all of the data yet, but you have to adjust your risk model at the point at which, um, I mean, I don't know. I absolutely don't know, and I don't think that a univariate analysis looking at one thing could potentially explain, like, birth rates globally potentially dropping. I don't know. I think that, that almost everything is more complex than that. But if there's a risk that it is, since the landscape has changed, it's definitely worth looking at and saying we, sh we should probably pump the brakes on this. And I want to make a subtle point here. Due to the fact that the vaccines that we're currently talking about, the mRNA-based vaccines, if they don't do what they were FDA-approved for, which is in the FDA approval or authorization and, and for Pfizer's approval, it is for prevention of COVID-19. Since they don't do that, then one thing we could easily do is say, why don't we default to a safer vaccine platform in light of the fact that what our vaccines are currently doing is diminishing the severity of symptoms and potentially preventing hospitalizations. If they're doing that, then there are safer platforms we could adopt that would get us that same um, level of effectiveness and also have a much better safety profile. So we could immediately... So, so I just want to, Kyle, I've just, let me ask the same question first, Nick, and I'll give you the mic. Uh, Kyle, I want to ask the same question I asked you to Joanna. If, so, so I quote what Jordan said, there is something happening, but we don't know what it is. We're trying to figure it out. Is Pfizer required to disclose such concerns openly or not yet? They're meant to study them further before disclosing them. Could they, because I'm sure they know more than any of us. It typically, whenever you're, when you're, in this kind of space where and I, people tend not to, to accept this in the general public, but when you're dealing with something that will potentially affect the lives and health of healthy people, the safety standard is very much higher because what we're trying to do here is if you think about the scenario, 
the scenario is we're trying to take a healthy person who does not have a disease and we're trying to prevent them from getting a disease which they do not have yet. And so in order to do that, you want the benefit to risk ratio to be way on their side. And so there's I, just just for the sake of argument. So everyone hears me very clearly because today I got accused by a reputable academic of being anti-vax for saying this. There's a world where when the pandemic first started, one could make the argument. I'm not saying I buy it. I'm saying it's it's allowable to make this argument that you could get an absolutely 100 percent effective vaccine that was entirely unsafe. You could also get an entirely safe vaccine that had no efficacy. What we want to do is we want to get somewhere in between there. And for sure that if you see signals, that's something you should automatically be reporting. Now, that may be internally, the conversations with the FDA, that's part of your clinical trial. You should be reporting that, of course. I mean, that all of those adverse reactions and safety signals should should be diligently tracked and reported. So, so, so let me we're, ask, a, we're, we're in a political, we're, we're in a, but I want, I, I think it's an important sure. point to make in terms of Mario's question that, uh, you know, it sh- should Pfizer be reporting this in, in, in the normal world, pre COVID, pre the government buying this massive store of vaccines that I guess they want to use. Uh, I think, yes, that, that is absolutely the expectation, but just, Again, remember that uh, if anyone didn't, you know, it wasn't part of the prior spaces is that there are the FDA approved these drugs, right? Uh, uh, the mRNA vaccines in part authorized, authorized, uh, authorized, sorry, authorized, sorry, authorized drugs uh, and mandated certain trials happen. OK, one of the trials that they mandated happen was to look to look for subclinical myocarditis, meaning they needed to take a group of people, give them the mRNA vaccine and check to see if they had biomarkers of cardiac injury that went up or not, okay? And they were supposed to do that in August, or sorry, in the summer. That was at one deadline. It passed. Then the deadline was changed to December. That also passed, meaning they have not done the trial. <laughs> that was mandated by the FDA as part of the approval process, right? And now they surreptitiously changed it. So the, oh, oh no, actually, we wanted to be done by the, the summer of 2023. So I think the the one point in the, the, the one the one point that's really important to make in terms of what Mario's question is is it, should the uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies should Pfizer be uh, required to report some of this stuff? Uh, yes, in another world they're absolutely required to report it, and you don't have these this kind of weird stuff happening. But there's a lot. I think there's a lot of politics going on, and uh, you have uh, the FDA and and Pfizer not quite. Uh, um, the FDA not being, you know, uh, you know, the, the fox guarding the hen house, if you will, where uh, you just don't have what should be happening, happening. I mean, it, it's really, really stunning to to watch what's happened over, over the last two years. The other, the other point that's unrelated that I wanted to make was that, you know, we have to understand where the source is coming from. Just in a pushback to, in terms of, you know, he's like this, you know, this deeply embedded scientist who like understands all this stuff. This is a really young guy, okay? I mean, if you watch his interactions, this is not like any, I mean, at least most physicians <laughs> that I've ever interacted with. Um, and he's hes a urology, if you look at his trajectory, okay? He has a very good pedigree. He, UT San Antonio, I think some uh, University of Texas medical school. And then from there, uh, he's Yale undergrad, University of Texas that. And then he goes to Mass General, which is one of the top uh, medical schools in the country uh, for urology. But he doesn't finish a urology residency. He only spends a year there. Right. So he doesn't finish urology residency. 
And then he goes to a Boston consulting firm and then joins for like two years and then joins Pfizer as like, you know, this ridiculous role of like director of mRNA vaccine. I mean, the guy is really young and I don't understand what credentials he has to necessarily know anything about anything. I mean, he's a urology resident. He's a first year urology resident who. So, I mean, I, I don't quite I'm not. So I'm a little suspicious about what he's saying. And, you know, the, the part where that, that second video where James O'Keefe confronted him and where he was like, look, I'm not even a scientist. And I was just trying to impress a guy on a date. <laughs> I'm a little I'm a little partial to that. Just as just just as a medical guy looking in, because this is literally guys. This I mean, for the medical people in the audience, this is a first year urology resident. Who's who now? Three years later, is like so director I can of mRNA research. Yeah, I was yeah. going to go to you. That seems a little ridiculous. So, I, I yeah, can respond. Ahead, so, so Anish, and this is, uh, you know, I understand you're pointing this out. So, this is a point that I've made for several different questions that have risen from this individual. The first question that came out publicly when the first video came out last week was, "Does this person even work at Pfizer?" Right. That was the first question that you know Project Veritas proved unequivocally that he does. But what I'd like to point out. In this case, and this serves for every other criticism of this individual and his credibility, is that in Pfizer's response a week ago uh, from the first video, they obviously don't say that he doesn't work at Pfizer, which means he does, right? That's what you can take from that. But they also don't downplay his role nor his knowledge. It would be, wouldn't you agree, and this is a question, wouldn't you agree it would be easy for Pfizer to say, as you said, this guy is way too young to be talking. They could they could have made that statement. They could have said this guy doesn't know what he's talking about because of these factors in his experience, this factor in his age. None of those things were brought up by Pfizer itself. So, you know, again, I'm not a medical expert. I can't speak to the details. I think he has. I think he. There's no question he has those titles. I'm saying. I'm saying like I feel like he's he's a guy that I'm, I'm not, and I don't deny that he has that role as like director of whatever. But I feel like he's a guy in a conference listening to a bunch of people, and he's kind of just regurgitating something so i don't know that he's i don't know like i would love to question jordan walker about what exactly he knows about about biodistribution of the mrna vaccine in the ovaries what exactly he knows about fertility rates i i my, my guess is given his trajectory unless he's a complete genius savant which why did he not complete a urology residency at master well i mean i guess people drop out but anyway my point is and he doesn't have any like he's not he has no basic bioscience research either like uh, anyway, I, I'm a little. I, I don't. I, I don't know well, what to make make of. Well, he's a urologist. Well, to your point, Mario. To your point, Mario. I mean, I think he didn't. Uh, the the fact that Pfizer didn't respond, sort of denouncing him, doesn't mean much because, I mean, it it, it can mean something, but but they also didn't address anything to do with Project Veritas. So it could be part of their strategy just to not address Project Veritas, to not address the video. I see it. I see it. I see it. An interesting from a PR standpoint, I understand where Pfizer won't name Project Veritas or name Jordan Walker. But I don't, I don't see any impediment for them to say the individual featured in the video without saying his name or, or you know, promoting the actual video. They could say, you know, the vi- individual uh, featured or something along the, that, those lines. I think from PR standpoint, at least from my you know, experience, that actually would, would fit you know, their interests in terms of avoiding bringing additional attention to individual names. Again, no one can know for sure what's going on behind the scenes as to what the PR decisions are at a company as, such as Pfizer. But from experience, that's what I've generally seen. And, and that's one, um, discuss one other point you made there, Anish, about 
his response to James. So actually, I was on an interview today with News Nation, and they pushed, you know, they tried to grill me on, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming they weren't huge fans of the video in News Nation. But they tried to grill me on that point, like, oh, this man is on video trying to say he doesn't know, know anything or he's a liar. But, okay, like, you know, maybe he is, but what about the factor that, you know, he might be saying that knowing that he, you know, having knowledge of what he said on undercover video and then being confronted with those questions, wouldn't it be a natural impulse from a person that, you know, just got caught saying these things to try to discredit themselves so that, you know, to create doubt about their actual knowledge? So I don't know if there's a, a, a guarantee either way that, you know, him saying he, he lied or doesn't lie, that, um, you know, he actually meant those words in the moment of such, you know, shock to him that, you know, we, we were there asking questions. So it's, it's hard to make decisions. And, uh, and I wanna, Mario, I want to ask another question, uh, Mario, and, and then we'll go to obviously I see Spice and Aaron want to jump in and Dr. Debs up on stage. But Mario, another thing said in the videos, there is a group of women who are, no, that's not it. Um, uh, there is, a, okay, there's a whole list of things that MRNA will be used for. Now that for me, when I first heard it, I'm like, that's not too concerning. They're just looking for other applications of the vaccine. Um, is that the right interpretation of it? Because I know you covered it yesterday, Mario, and you guys discussed it internally. What, is that what, a fair statement or does it bring up more questions? What's, what's the actual quote? I, I, do, I do know. There is a whole list of things. There's a whole list of things that MRNA will be used for. Beyond COVID, that he doesn't say beyond COVID. What he implies is that they, they're going to be using mRNA technology for more things beyond COVID. And I believe and, that was referring to oncology and gene editing. Yeah, and which is which is true. Which, by the way, I mean, it started out mRNA technology did start out as something that was meant to be be used for other uses. It wasn't obviously meant for uh, uh, for for uh, the vaccine, right, or for COVID. It was cancer research and, and other things. So That's right. mRNA has had enthusiasts for many years that are looking to use it for various applications across various disciplines within medicine. And for many of them, uh, utilizing the platform for this vaccine had two advantages. One, it could be scaled up very quickly. Um, a lot of vaccines are hard to produce uh, because they take they take time to culture viruses and so forth. It, it happens slowly. So this is something that could be scaled up very quickly. But there were a lot of mRNA enthusiasts that were also just eager to, to help the public to embrace a novel technology under the circumstances of the pandemic that the public may have been more hesitant to embrace as rapidly under other circumstances. Uh, so I, 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 there definitely is enormous interest in mRNA now at, I would I would venture all the large pharmaceutical companies. So that aspect of the video, I didn't find at all surprising. That seems totally plausible, just based on what um, many pharmaceutical executives have said quite publicly and many research scientists have said quite publicly. So, so Aaron, I've got another thing that's said in the video. I hope we don't find out that mRNA lingers in the body. Can you elaborate yeah. on that point of concern? Has that been a concern that you and others have had before? Um, oh, and there's there's a there's a really interesting microditis angle. Sorry, Aaron, about him. Uh, but I'll let you. Yeah. Go. So so, so the c concern is basically they this jab initially had was supposed to have been engineered to stay in the deltoid muscle where it was injected, and we now know that the lipid nanoparticle, which is the envelope that carries the mRNA around the body, travels to various organs in the body. Uh, there's animal data looking at what's called biodistribution. Where does 
the lipid nanoparticle and presumably the mRNA go. And it it goes to basically all organs in the body, at least in animal models, presumably also in human beings. And interestingly, in the Japanese data looking at this, uh, the animal studies, the highest concentration of the mRNA lipid nanoparticle was in the female ovary, which was of significant concern, although there was high concentrations in other organs as well. Another concern is not just the mRNA, but the spike protein that the mRNA produces. So we know from several studies in human beings that the spike protein stays in circulation for at least 60 days and perhaps longer um, after the two-dose regimen and after some of the boosters. And that surprised a lot of people because most people expected that uh, the protein would be broken down and metabolized much, much more quickly than that. And again, if you have this protein, which we know is thrombogenic, it can promote blood clotting, and we know is cytotoxic, that for certain cells, it can re- result in toxicity or cell death. If it's traveling all over the body, as uh, it, it seems likely, uh, and it's staying in the body much longer than it was designed to do, or then that we initially suspected with this technology, that's of concern. And I I just want to take a minute to walk through the the history of the concerns about fertility with this chat, because I think that gives some context for this third video drop from uh, Project Veritas, because in a sense, Project Veritas video, because it's been viewed by so many people, may have been the first time that people had heard there may be concerns about fertility. But if you've been paying close attention, those concerns started early on. Number one, the vaccine was not tested in pregnant women. They were deliberately excluded from the phase three clinical trials. Although, although some people got pregnant. No, no. When you say deliberately, are you sure and why? No, that was part of the study design. And that's very common, Mario, because um, they don't they don't want to take the risk of causing what's called teratogenic effects, basically harms to the developing fetus. So it's very common in most study protocols to either exclude women of childbearing age or uh, women who are uh, open to or attempting to get pregnant. Um, so that's not at all unusual. But what, what was concerning is that people weren't informed that the vaccine had never been studied on that population. So the first time it was used uh, on women of childbearing age or pregnant women uh, that, you know, maybe wanting to get pregnant was during the initial rollout. And so that, that goes back to the issue of informed consent. They were the first, in a sense, research subjects. There happened to be a handful of women that got pregnant uh, without you know, unintentionally during the study. And we now have the numbers on that. I wish I had them at my fingertips. Don't quote me on the exact numbers, but I wanted to say there were something like 27 pregnancies and um, most of them uh, ended up in a miscarriage. Uh, so insofar as there were any women in the- So Aaron, uh, just to understand, I interrupt you, just want to understand yeah. something. So there were 27 pregnancies from the people- uh, uh, out of which women, which, women which in the test? study who, so this, again, there was the phase three clinical trials. So thousands of people, right, Mario, and they attempted to exclude women who were going to get pregnant during the trial. But um, 
okay. you know, human beings being as they are. Some of the women got pregnant in the study and it was somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 19 or 27. For some reason, those numbers are sticking out in my head. But of the handful of women that got pregnant, uh, most of those pregnancies ended in a uh, miscarriage, uh, spontaneous abortion. Uh, so that's not a huge um, data set, right? Um, and it you know, may or may not have been a statistically significant finding, but that was the data that we had going into the mass vaccination campaign. Would you, Aaron, would you say objectively looking at this data, if you had this data on hand at the time, is that concerning enough to hold the vaccine or at least put a warning for pregnant women or no? Well, uh, I I think the warning would be basically um, there's a there's a potential safety signal here. This requires more research and women of childbearing age should be cautious and should talk to their doctor about their individualized risks and benefits of the vaccine. But that's not what was happening. People were going to parking lots, you know, and, and lining up in a sort of an assembly line process and, you know, not maybe given a flyer saying that potential side effects include a sore arm and maybe a fever for a day or two. But none, none of those things had any information um, about concerns about fertility. And then a second data point developed pretty quickly. And yes, this is anecdotal, but these case reports are the first step in flagging a potential issue that requires more research. And what was happening is lots of women were reporting not just menstrual irregularities, but very concerning menstrual irregularities like postmenopausal bleeding, which is always, you know, <laughs> always a very serious thing. It's not, it's not something that happens. So women who have not ovulated or not menstruated for years suddenly having vaginal bleeding. There were other case reports of women literally bleeding nonstop for weeks, um, you know, a, a, a quote unquote period lasting um, not just a few days, but. But these are, but Aaron, these are all anecdotal. There's no. They're all, well, they're all, they're all anecdotal, but there's, there's a temporal association with the shot. So not definitive. Obviously the phase three clinical trial was not definitive, but you have two uh, unusual data points here. Then we got a third data point because all the focus has been on female fertility. But then there was a study published from an IVF clinic showing a decline in sperm count in men following the jab. And it appeared to have been temporary, uh, but there was no follow-up on that. There was no, there was no NIH effort to you know, do a larger study to see possible effects on male fertility, to see possible additives or cumulative effects on male fertility with uh, booster uh, doses. And then we get uh, probably the most concerning data point. Well, I mean, we get lots of, lots of nurses and doctors working in obstetric settings saying that, you know, they're, they're again, anecdotal, yes, but a safety signal. Uh, saying that they're they're seeing a lot of miscarriages, they're seeing a lot of uh, pregnancy complications following the mass vaccination campaign that they didn't see in 2020 when it was just people getting COVID. Um, and w- where was where was that study? Because I do uh, 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 that last question. I want to go to Spice and Eugene to respond because you did mention a lot of. I think any any women listening to this will probably be pretty concerned listening to you right now, Aaron. Um, so I want to. I would love Spice and Eugene to respond. But yeah, just that last point you made—that the most concerning one—the study about an increase 
in uh, pregnancy issues? Is that what you said? Oh, so no, I think the most concerning finding is actually, and again, this is a temporal association and it doesn't establish causation, but roughly nine months after the mass vaccination campaign began, not after the pandemic began a year earlier, but after the vaccination campaign began, we have data from several European countries showing a sharp, unexpected decline in birth rates. Um, and that decline began last year and has continued on in some countries this year. Now, does that prove? Oh, you said there's too many factors. There's too many does factors. Prove, yeah, so you think it raises questions. No, but, but, what, but what we have here, and here's my concern, what we have here is several non-definitive suggestive pointers all pointing in the same direction, right? So if we're trying to solve a case... And we have one clue, like the Project Veritas video. Well, that alone is, you know, probably not very convincing. But you put that in the context of six or seven other clues, all pointing in a concerning direction. And uh, this is the last point, and then we'll hand it over to Spice and Dr. Goof. My concern from those who raise these concerns and are met with responses of, well, you haven't proven it yet, is that that reverses actually the burden of proof. The burden of proof is not people who have safety concerns regarding fertility. The burden of proof is on the people pushing the vaccine to establish that it is in fact safe in women of childbearing age, or for that matter, safe for men who may be um, trying to have children. And, uh, and why the federal government only set aside $1.5 million to study the fertility issue at the NIH, which is a tiny, tiny amount. Uh, given the the potential implications of an issue like this. And by the way, they did that right away. After the initial res reports of uh, menstrual problems, the NIH uh, early in the mass vaccination campaign designated uh, you know, a, a, a tiny amount of money to study whether there may be fertility concerns. And, um, and I think at this point, um, what you have to do is say, no, the, the burden of proof is on the people who want to give this to a population who's not at high risk from bad outcomes from COVID, which is young men or women of childbearing age. And, and what, last quick question, and I do need to go to Spice and Eugene to continue the discussion and balance it out a bit, but a last very quick question. If you asked those questions back during COVID two years ago, was that enough to censor you or, or risk losing your license? Oh, yeah. Just bringing, you know, bringing... Well, I don't know about risk losing my license, but um, yeah, certainly you would be censored if you raised issues about... COVID, you know, there were Facebook groups with literally tens of thousands, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of um, people who had experienced what they thought were vaccine side effects, including fertility issues. And those groups are just shut down. They were just support groups, people trying to talk to one another. And certainly as a physician, um, if, if, you were to, if you were to raise these issues, you would be immediately flagged as spreading misinformation. Because basically, what the social media companies considered misinformation in uh, 2021, 2022 was anything that might undermine people's confidence in the vaccine. Whether or not it was true didn't really matter. Whether or not it was a legitimate kind of question to raise didn't really matter. And, and uh, let me actually say something to that, Dr. Uh, um, go ahead. I'll let, I'll let you use that. Mario. No, I'm yeah, sorry, I'll, I'll, let, I'll, I'll let you go, go Mario. And then we'll go... Okay. Okay. Mario, do you mind if we get Spice? Yeah, yeah. Uh, do you mind, Sp Mario? I'll get Spice to respond, uh, and then we'll give you the mic right after. Is that okay, Mario? Sounds good. Sounds good. 
Thanks, bro. Thanks, man. Uh, yes, Spice, I'd love you to respond to. There's a lot of points made by Aaron. I saw you were reacting to a few of them, especially when when we when he said these are anecdotal, yeah. and you put a lot of 100 percent emojis. <laughs> uh, would love. Uh, well, first of, would love to to get your thoughts. Yeah, thank you. Said. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Uh, hello, Aaron and Nick. Um, looking forward to having respectful dialogue on this. Good piece. to have you, Spice, as always. Thank you. So. Mario, I'm sorry. I, I'm a little pressed for time. Like, I'm on a break, and they could just pull me no any words. second, okay? If this was after hours, I wouldn't mind. Um, I just want to go back because I believe when we're on here, we really have to give facts and data. So I have to go back to Steve, and I don't know where everyone's getting this uh, decline in U.S. birth rates, but since 2018 to 2023, I have links and data showing an increase in birth rate. That's number one. Number two, worldwide birth rates for the past 20, 30 years have been declining. Very, very small drips and drabs. I don't, it's not related to the vaccine. It's just that's the statistics and that's the trends. Now, I want to talk about fertility because I have friends who work in a fertility clinic. And I just want to throw some facts out there, especially for Aaron. So Aaron, our miscarriage rate is 15%. Between 10 and 15% women are going to miscarry. This is way before the vaccines. It just is what it is, right? It kind of it increases with different factors in age. It's, you know, it is multifactorial. As you get older, you have less of a chance of, you know, carrying a child. Now, of those 10 to 15% miscarriages, guess what? percentage is due to genetic abnormalities. Yes, about Spice, I 80, understand that there are many, yeah, wait, wait, many wait, wait, early miscarriages before Wait, I'm not, Aaron, I'm not done. I'm, I'm speaking <laughs> in theoretical. I'm sorry. About 80 to 90 percent of those miscarriages are genetic abnormalities. Okay? I think it's really important to, to, to jot down these statistics. Now, the vaccine, particularly Moderna, I know everyone's focusing on Pfizer, but Moderna uh, was linked to menstrual dysfunction for the past year, year and a half. I mean, we all knew this. I don't know everyone on, you know, I don't know everyone's knowledge here on this base, but this is not anything new. So this is very old information. It's been addressed. And it's and the studies Wait, show that sorry. the dysfunction. How, is it, how has it been addressed? It's been addressed through, through recent studies in in September and October of 2022 that dysfunction doesn't doesn't signify infertility. Now I'm not saying if if you guys are concerned, if everyone's concerned, then if they want to do more more you know studies and data, then then that's fine. But you know the infertility issue it, it's it comes down to the genetics and the DNA. No. That's the studies have not the studies have not answered the fertility question. Oh, it studies. absolutely think, did. It, it showed I think that that's where you're. You know, dis, I think that's I where have you're the wrong. links. It's not about okay. right or wrong. Let's I'm showing you the two studies that I wrote. Spice, now, do you mind? Do you mind sending me through the links, Spice? And I'd love to ha to sure, have a look at them and sure. share them with Aaron and others, please. Whenever you get time. Yeah, I'll do it. And, and so, you know, I, I think now we're talking about risk benefits, right? When it first came out in 2020, when the vaccine first came out, if you were to ask someone, would you 
risk getting a missed period here or there? Or would you not get vaccinated and get COVID lungs, COVID toes, seizures, strokes, blood clots, and death? What would you choose during that time? Hands down, I would get vaccinated. And I did. And I got vaxxed and I got double boosted. For me, wasn't worth it. When you look at the data, people are still dying. Three hundred People shouldn't be dying of COVID. Unvaccinated Spice, that's, people that's are dying. That's great for you. And yeah. I'm glad that and you did unvaccinated people, decision. yeah, unvaccinated people but, are dying at a higher rate and they are still dying. So to talk about that, the risk benefit ratio, what would you rather do? Have a missed period here or there or get sick and, and suffer from long term COVID? So I think, maybe, I think most okay, so women we could, would rather. So have I'm, I'm finished, Aaron. So if you have any yeah. questions, we can yeah, do I this. Do some, I do have enough. some comments. Um, yeah. So the question of what would you rather do is a question for each patient to decide. Uh, I agree. You have to understand that many of the women who took the vaccine did so under pressure, under duress, under the threat of losing their job, and without being informed uh, of concerns that had been raised about fertility issues. So a, a missed period, I agree, is not really a problem for most women. Some women might even welcome it. But you have to ask the question, what is the purpose of the menstrual cycle? And if the menstrual cycle is disrupted, is that of, a, is that of concern to you? Um, and if a woman says, well, does that mean that my fertility is going to be impacted? The answer right now is not no. The answer right now is it might be. There is some evidence to suggest that it might be, including just the fact that the menstrual cycle is disrupted. Right, and we could agree. Cycle hey, uh, is pregnancy. hey, hey, Aaron. We could um, agree that but, we didn't know but this. We don't this know side of and so yeah, take, we didn't know. Hang, hang on one second, James. We're gonna. I'm, trust me, I'm bringing you in right after this. So. When you make your decision, and some women would make the decision that you made. They said, "Well, okay, it's probably just a misperiod at at worst, and I'm not really concerned." And uh, I'm really afraid of dying of COVID, so I'm going to take the jab. But other women, other women probably would want to know, okay, well, what are what are some of the safety signals that have been raised about As fertility? Soon, yeah, I, I agree. And, I agree with and you. And by the way, the, the numbers on fertility that are uh, that are of most concern, because the United, the United States um, uh, data on fertility, actually, we're, we're still waiting on a lot of that data, actually. Um but the data that's been released in the last few weeks is from several Euro European countries that were utilizing, um, and you're right, Pfizer is not the only one of potential concern. Pfizer and Moderna, by the way, are, are both almost identical products. Moderna has a higher dose. And so Moderna, in uh -huh. some cases, has been linked to uh, higher rates of adverse effects, probably just as a factor of, of a matter of dosing. Um, Mario, Mario, I know you wanted to jump in, so I'll give you the mic to jump in quickly before we go yeah. to James. Yeah. Yeah, was, and then, then Nick would introduce James. By the way, I just, Spice, I just Aaron, want to just great, respond great, really quick and I go have ahead, to go, yeah, Mario. Yeah. So, sorry, yeah, of course. Honey. Spice, just I'll let really you respond. Quick, then, I, then we'll go to Mario and James. Yeah. Go ahead. I, I'll re uh, this is recording, so I'll listen to it. Yeah, I agree with you, Aaron. And, you know, unfortunately... <sighs> sorry, my mom keeps calling. <laughs> Come on, mom. I think Spice, I think we need to let Dr. James Thorpe speak to address before Spice goes 
Um, he, he is the expert on this topic. He will. Yeah, we brought him up, Dr. Deb. So I just, Spice has to jump off. So her, her and I were going back and forth. So I'll let Spice Great. respond quickly. I know Mario wanted to jump in earlier before Spice, and then we'll go to Dr. James Thorpe that Nick will introduce. Yeah, sorry. So because it was a big pandemic, um, they didn't know. I mean, you're right, Aaron. They didn't know that this was going to cause this side effect. Um, as soon as it did, I mean, it was part of the informed consent for if it was proven, you know, it's not like you're bringing it also back to choice. I'm not going to argue with you about the mandates and about the choice. You know, the way I practice is my patients, I let them decide. I give them what I know and I let them decide. I would never want to stress my patients out over a vaccine. It's not worth it. I'm not here to convince anyone. I'm going to give them the data. I'm going to give them the research and practice as ethical as possible. But you're right. They didn't know. So, you know, I don't know if you want to make this about choice or not or the mandates, but right now we're talking about the concerns over I wanna, fertility. That's all. I actually want to ask, yeah, so, so, so I want to ask the audience, Aaron, I will, I'll have to go to Mario and James, but I want to ask the audience, like, is your concern more that you, you didn't have full clarity during COVID? That's for the audience. I want you to go bottom right corner in that purple circle. And I want you to tell me, like, is your concern, Mario, the censorship during COVID is my biggest concern, or is it... The vaccine itself is a big concern considering all the recent findings. Or is it, look, I don't have any concern. I'm still comfortable with the vaccine despite the new revelations, including the revelations by Project Veritas, which are the, 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 the reason we're having this space. So I want to get your thoughts. In which bucket do you sit or is there another bucket that I haven't mentioned that you sit in? Just for the audience and mainly is it like for the people that have concerns, is it the – because if you're in this space, generally you have concerns. Is it the vaccine itself or is it the, the censorship rather than the vaccine, considering the findings. But I will have to go. Mario, I'll let you jump in before Nick introduces Dr. Thorpe. Yeah, th thank you. Um, just wanted to go back to something quickly that Dr. Curiati said about social media censorship during 2021 and 2022. He's absolutely right, and we have the proof at Project Veritas. Um, many of you might remember uh, in May of 2021, we released a story from a Facebook whistleblower who gave us documents inside Facebook saying that they should censor any vaccine, any anti-vaccine sentiment on on the platform, and quote, even if the information is provenly true. So they, this was a document that was leaked to us, where Facebook blatantly said that if the information is true, but it discourages people, the vaccine hesitancy terminology, if it discourages people from taking the vaccine, you can take it down. And that was proven correct. Uh, because months later, uh, in October and September of 2021, Project Veritas did a five-part series exposing the COVID vaccine through, you know, the big pharma companies and the regulatory health agencies. And all of those videos were basically taken down immediately from Instagram. Um, James and Project Veritas couldn't even be tagged on Instagram because they locked us down so much. And to this day, I've never heard of an actual explanation as to what was wrong what those videos were. I want to confirm, and Mario, I want to confirm this is correct. We did a whole space on this um, a few weeks ago now, um, and we had the same leak as well. So that's absolutely yeah. true. Facebook Meta was censoring any information um, that was discouraging people from taking the vaccine, even if that information is true. Um, so, yeah, I want to agree with you there. But I'll go to Nick to introduce Dr. Thorpe, uh, which I think is the first time, Dr., you join our stage. So, so Nick, I'll let you do the introductions, and, and we'll give the mic to James. Awesome. Uh, so, Dr. Thorpe, you have 44 years' experience as an obstetrician gy uh, gynecologist and maternal fetal medicine physician. Uh, so this is uh, right up your alley, a lot of this conversation. Um, 
And so first off, I just kind of want your general feedback on it. I don't know if you saw the Project Veritas video today. I'm assuming you did. Uh, but it seems that Pfizer knew that their COVID vaccine causes problems with female menstrual cycles. So I'd love your take on it. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much for the invitation to uh, speak here on this um, incredible group. And I want to thank Elon Musk for opening up the Twitter space. Um, and I want to salute everybody out there. I see a lot of familiar faces. Uh, um, Steve Kirsch, thank you so much. Steve, Steve's one of my heroes. Steve was recently uh, inducted into a, a very elite society, um, and it's the Royal Society of Veritas Liberadit Vos. Um, it's a very, very elite society of only a few percent, one percent of human beings that have the intellectual and ethical uh, integrity, regardless of their political situation, to look at data and to make a 180-degree academic metanoia, if you will, and completely change course of his action or her action based upon new data. And uh, only 1% of human beings have the intellectual and the ethical capability of doing that. 99% do not because our egos get involved and uh, our, our uh, other issues get involved. So congratulations, Steve Kirsch, and, and thank you for the invitation here. By the way, the other uh, s several other prominent people have been um, inducted into this uh, great honor. Um, and uh, the other individuals, Dr. Asim Mahaltra, and I haven't had the ability to visit with Asim personally, uh, but but he uh, he's close in spirit. Well, we well, would love would love to invite him on stage, James. And, and Doctor, yeah. I, I've got the, the the first question for you is after hearing the exchange between Spice and Aaron um, uh, regarding the concerns uh, about female fertility when it comes yes. to the vaccine. Do you share those concerns? Because they were both made really good arguments. Aaron made they said there's not enough studies to say, hey, there's direct causation, but there's enough data to say there's 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 at least a warning should be there and further studies should be conducted. As Spice did question a lot of those studies, such and, and especially some of the numbers, like the fertility. Uh, I think it was the fertility in in the U.S. was not on on the on the decline. Uh, internationally, the decline is minimal. Uh, she gave me the 100% emoji, so I got that right. So from the data that you see, uh, Dr. Thorpe, what's your take? What's your position? Well, my, my position is it's, there's a very severe adverse effect, both by, by my uh, clinical observation, by the extensive studies that I've published just in the last three years. Um, I want to – I don't know I, – I know that Spice must be a doctor – but I don't, I'm not familiar with who she is. She, um, and I have really appreciated her spirit, um, and, and her honesty. Um, is she, if she's an OBGYN physician or not, but I, I do have some issues that I want to say. First of all, with regard to spice, um, the comments, the miscarriage rate, the average miscarriage rate is not 10 to 15%. That's an absolute mistake. Guarantee you. And I'll show you the study of Mayert. 
and colleagues that was just published. Now, this was published uh, just a few months ago in 2022, but remember all of the subjects in Nayart's study, and I believe this is published in the Journal of Maternal Fetal Investigation a couple of months ago, all of these studies were pre, all of the patients involved with the study are pre-pandemic. That's very, very important. Um, So what Nayart found was, no, the, the miscarriage rate on a booking exam is, say you come in to pregnancy uh, and you come in at six weeks because you've missed a period two weeks ago, seven weeks, you got a positive pregnancy test. The risk of miscarriage um, between um, up until 19 weeks and six days is only, um, it's it's quite low. It's it's 5.4%. It's not 15%. And that's very confusing to many but that's the most contemporary data, and there were a massive number of patients. So by the very fact that Dr. Spice quoted uh, 15%, she's dead. That's wrong. The, the data, to say it, it's 10 to 15% when it should be 4 or 5%, if you have a heartbeat at 13 weeks, the risk of miscarriage is only 0.8%. So um, I can tell you most assuredly that if the vaccine is given in the first trimester, and I, I'll guarantee you this, I have the data to prove it. If the vaccine is administered in the first trimester, the vaccine has a better rate of aborting the pregnancy than the abortion pill. I can, uh, I so, can so say James, that with absolute d- d- certainty. Quick, quick, quick question, yeah, if you don't mind, Doctor. Yeah, I let you respond, Spice. I, I do want to mention something before giving you the mic, Spice. Um, so, so Nick did. I asked Nick to, to just quickly fact check this, and he got a source from the Mayo Clinic, and I'll, I'll read out exactly what Nick sent me. Um, it is estimated that as many as 26% of all pregnancies end in miscarriage, and up to 10% of clinically recognized pregnancies. And Nick, is that correct? What you've sent me? Just yeah, so that that language is correct. Yeah. So, and so Spice, Jonah, yeah, go ahead. Nick, is, and I go to Spice is, and back to James. I know. It's, this it's, one is actually from the, the NIH, so you can take that as you wish. But um, yeah, so so Mario got those numbers exactly. Yeah, right. sorry, yes. Spice, go I'm ahead, sorry. Spice, and we'll go I, back to Doctor Thorpe. I should introduce myself because you know I do a lot. You know, I have my own medical PC. I work in an urgent care. I pr- I produce events in an LLC, and I do real estate. So my medical background is this, Dr. James. I'm a family nurse practitioner. I've been practicing for six years, and I was a nurse before that for about 15. So I have about 20-plus years in healthcare. Um, I hopped on the mass vaccination project in New York City, and I worked alongside with the um, DOH and CDC. So I pretty much was very involved uh, during COVID. I also got sick with covid for three months, and I had the doctors telling me I was one of the lucky ones. So that's why I come on here, because I'm passionate. I'm not going to pretend I know all the answers. Um, so we're sharing information here. Technically, I don't care if I'm right or if I'm wrong. I'm here to learn, and I'm here to support people and, and just listen. You know, that's honestly why Mario has me up here, because I do consider myself emotionally removed, and I'm very objective. Now, when someone said, let the experts speak, you know, I, I kind of found that funny because by legal definition, I am an expert in COVID. 
Maybe you don't like my accent. No, I think they meant. No, I think spice. They meant. They meant me. Like Mario, don't speak yourself. Uh, they were referring to me and just oh, okay. give, 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 jab at no, me. Don't worry, spice. Not you. No, someone. Someone said spice. Let the experts speak. So I just have to t- let everyone know that yes, when it comes to COVID, I worked alongside the CDC and the DOH and NYC. And by legal definition, I am an expert. I appreciate it. Um, and, and in terms but, of what James mentioned, yeah. Spice, just, just to go back to the to the point, um, did you want to... Yeah, refer, the, you, I, thought, I saw you give a, yeah, you give a thumb up, thumb, thumbs up and I a know, thumbs I down. Know. Because Dr. James is right in a sense, it goes on a scale of how many weeks you're pregnant. Correct. So the most critical period is that first six weeks. I didn't want to dismiss the whole up to 19 weeks, but I figured if we're talking about, you know, uh, dysfunction of, of menstrual cycles, I wanted to really focus in on the first, the first okay, six weeks. Okay, I appreciate weeks. it, Spice. Yes. So, so, yeah. so go back. I'll, Doc, yeah, go Dr. ahead, Nick. Are we seeing, are we seeing, mis- are you seeing in your data or in your clinical practice, miscarriages that are occurring later in pregnancy at higher rates? Because very early miscarriages appear to be the most common form of miscarriage, often before six or eight weeks, before a woman may even know she's pregnant, she may have right. what she considers to be a heavy late period. Uh, is this Aaron? In, yeah, it this is, is yes. Aaron. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I'm just wondering if you could unpack a little bit more, because yeah. you, you sort of dropped a bomb there with, yeah. with the, the claim that, uh, you know, it, it, that, the, the jab is more effective than I was gonna, I was gonna, at a yeah, certain yeah. stage of pregnancy. So I, I don't want to leave that claim hanging without um, just hearing more from you about your data set and sure. about your clinical experience with that, w- with this, because that's, I mean, that's a really terrifying claim. I think that we don't want to just leave hanging out there. Uh, let, let me get before you jump in there. Let me give you some stats real quick um, to kind of hit on a little bit what Spice was saying. Uh, you're looking at 14 and a half percent in the first six to nine weeks, about seven percent, 10 to 15 weeks, and less than two percent at 16 to nine weeks or 16 to 19 weeks. And that is from again the NIH. And this is where Aaron's question comes in: like, are you f- finding more issues in late stage pregnancy in terms of miscarriage? Which yeah. and then that's with James. You, you, and he did right. have that shock bombshell at the end. So yeah, would right. love you to elaborate exactly. I'm happy to do that. And again, thank you. And um, I, I really appreciate Spice's clarity. She she's she is an expert. I can tell in her voice, and I I love her spirit of objectivity, and and that's what I appreciate. So I, I want to make it real clear because this I, I work with a lot of experts around the world um, that are not OBGYN doctors, and th- they know they're a lot smarter than I am but they don't know my shtick or OBGYN's shtick. And and it's very, very confusing. So let me make it very clear. A miscarriage is impossible to occur at 20 weeks and later in pregnancy, period. By definition, just trust me. And that's where everybody gets confused. You cannot assess or evaluate or research miscarriage uh, in the same context of fetal death or stillbirth. Fetal death or stillbirth is occurs at approximately the level of 5.8 per thousand births in the United States of America. And it's very, very steady. And there's very, very little variance of that number. On the other hand, a miscarriage as, as Spice and everybody recognizes, of course, you know, within days after 
conception before um, my patients even miss a period and they're pregnant, um, they, there's a, even a very high miscarriage. Uh, and that miscarriage rate goes down. But once you have a heartbeat, and this is after the booking visit, after the OB doctor sees the patient, um, and there's a positive heart rate, that miscarriage is plummets. So this is what's extremely important. Um, and I'll, I'll go to the, the fetal death rate. I, I can tell you in 2020, the fetal death rate, and again, that's occurs when there's a baby dies, a preborn baby dies in the womb at or after 20 weeks and zero days gestation, but the baby dies before it comes out the birth canal or the C-section scar. Uh, so let's make that clear. That's very rare. Um, so uh, there, there are data that, that's quite clear. Now going to the other issue that you asked me to address, I, I am very confident, not with my own data, from the internal documents of Pfizer, Pfizer 5.3.6, okay, and you look at page 12 on that 30-page document, I pretty much have that document memorized because it's been in my possession for almost 18 months or 15 months. Um, it wasn't made public until uh, just uh, several uh, six months ago or so, in April 1st, 2022. And when it was made public by FOIA, which Pfizer tried to suppress for 75 years, Every single page that I had studied for the preceding year was accurate. Every dot, every, their own data uh, on page 12, if you look at that, and by the way, it was the worst written piece of work I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. I have a seven James, grant. sorry to interrupt. Was this the yeah. post-marketing surveillance report? Yes. I just want to clarify yeah. for the audience. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Page so, 12. Uh, Pull it up right now. Yeah. Here. This is just to clarify what this is. This was not part of the clinical trial. This was Pfizer monitoring adverse events in the first three months following public vaccination, following the, the rollout That's of the great. mass vaccination campaign in early 2021. And this is a document that um, yeah. I, I was actually the, the doctor who coordinated the doctors and scientists who filed that FOIA request uh, to the FDA to get the clinical trials data uh, from from Pfizer. So carry on, James. But, was that you or Aaron Siri that got that? Well, Aaron Siri was our lawyer, but then Aaron asked me to to get together the group of doctors and scientists gotcha. um, to to you know because a lawyer has to do it on behalf of a citizen, right? A group of concerned citizens. So that's how that worked out. Well, uh, let, so you know that document very well, and thank you so much. I do. Yeah, you, it's a very know, concerning you, document to my mind. And, the point that I was going to make on page 12, um, on page 12 of that document, I, I know exactly where it is. I don't have it in front of me. And any of the listeners can go there now. Just put in DuckDuckGo, Pfizer, P-F-I-Z-E-R, uh, 5.3.6, and go to the phmpt.org website. You'll pull it right up. Go to 12, page 12. And on page 12 is the obstetrical outcome of the post-marketing. And what's horrible about this is it's very concerning that um, if you look at, there were essentially 46% of those pregnant women that got that shot had side effects. That's extraordinary. 
46 percent so what, what um, do they do they go through what type of side effects they had dr thorpe uh they don't they they break them up into serious and non-serious um, and what was but, it for what was it for males just so i can compare if you don't mind for males i don't well i don't have it on that data from okay. that cohort but um the point that i want to make is that it was this was literally uh the way that this was written by pfizer my seven-year-old grandson could have done a better job writing it it was poor so i can i can understand where people would disagree with my assessment and my verbiage and my interpretation of that data but look at the data for yourself it's uh, of the 270 patients who are pregnant in that first 90 days um, with 274 fetuses because there were some multiple gestations um, 230 of eight of them were not even followed up and of the people that they did follow up it's it's really really concerning because 28 there were only 34 that were followed up and 28 of the 34 miscarried that got the first they got the vaccine in that cohort 28 out of 34 miscarried and, and that was what that was what Aaron you were referring to earlier correct yeah that that's a concerning data point what was the week I'm sorry I want how many weeks hang hang on stop I want to finish this is even more important if you take the New England Journal of Medicine article that pushed this lethal deadly vaccine in pregnancy which by the way is the most egregious violation, the catastrophic, most egregious violation of medical ethics in the history of humanity. You've broken the golden rule of pregnancy. You don't ever use toxic novel substances in pregnancy in all of human history. We've never done that. So you don't ever do that. So to push this is the most egregious on all of my patients globally. And who did this? The American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the American College of OBGYN, the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine, the CDC and the FDA, and the rest of the corrupt medical industrial complex. And um, when you look at the Shimabakuro article, Tommy T. Shimabakuro, there's 23 authors, and they have the audacity and the flagrancy of putting that with the corrupt New England Journal of Medicine that has massive conflicts of interest with pharmaceutical industry. And they put the New England Journal of Medicine article and say in April of 2021, saying that this is perfectly safe in pregnancy. All three of these authors had conflicts of interest. They were all employed by the government. There were three OB doctors. They knew fully well they lied and they cheated. They took the 700 patients that didn't get the vaccine in the first trimester. They got the vaccine in the last trimester. And they did a slight, fraudulent, underhanded maneuver. And they changed the denominator. And they took the miscarriage rate from 82% down to 13% by their slight of hand fraudulent manipulation of the data, and then they pushed that lethal drug 
to my patients all over the world, killing and injuring massive number of human beings. Dr. Thorpe, James. before anyone, so Aaron, before you go, I, I want to give yeah. quickly the mic, if you don't mind, Aaron, because I want to continue this discussion, but Kyle, I know you don't have a lot of time, and you wanted to add a point to this that you thought was important, Kyle. Um, so I'll give you the mic. Yeah, so one of the points that, again, needs to be reiterated here is one of the reasons why you need safety data and more than four months. And so when you earlier asked the question where people silenced or censored for this, this is one of the criticisms that I got was, what are the long-term safety data? And the typical response would be, well, you only need about four months of safety data. That's the, the track record for, for past vaccines. But whenever we brought to bear on that conversation that this is a novel therapeutic and this platform had never been rolled out, especially at the scale that we're talking about. People like me made a point to say, you got one shot at this because of the amount of people you're planning on vaccinating. And if you don't get this just right, not only are you going to do damage now, but you're potentially going to damage the entire vaccine program. And people can go back and look at what I was saying in 2020. I brought up Dingvaxia having lived in a place where there was endemic dengue and having gotten ADE from multiple strains of dengue. I said, we don't want a, an issue like Dingvaxia because when, when children died from that vaccine, it completely upended an entire country's vaccine program. So here's the reason why four months of data isn't enough for safety, especially women. Someone noted that there were women who got pregnant in the study. So you, you have some conflicting data there, right? Some women got pregnant. Some women lost their pregnancy. But for those women who, who were able to successfully carry out the pregnancy to birth, then we have a problem in that we had no data on whether or not <laughs> the vaccine, what, what happens then? Because the, the studies didn't come out until last year, I think, that shows that the actual spike protein is transferred through the milk. So for people like my, my wife and I, who unexpectedly got pregnant, um, and for posterity, daughter of mine, I love you, you're not an accident, if you hear this uh, at some point in the future. But we didn't know whether or not it was safe to even breastfeed, because we didn't know at the time whether or not vaccines... You understand that there had been no trials for children under six months. So we had no data, but you're essentially giving an infant a vaccine through breast milk and potentially more than they should get. We don't even have an idea about what was safe, what was not safe. And and the issue with that is that you're now talking about the future generation who has the most health years at risk. So if it's someone like me or another adult on the on the in the space you can make an argument where you say, well, you have informed consent. But this is the kind of stuff that we we could have gone with a safer platform because there were all of these externalities that we had no idea about. And so, I, yeah, Kyle, I, I want to riff on that a little bit. And just to clarify, that study showed that it was the mRNA itself, not the spike protein that was excreted in the breast milk. And the um, the ones who wanted people not to worry said, oh, don't worry. It's just a very, very small amount of mRNA. 
But that's not really reassuring because we know that a very, very small amount of this mRNA can produce a very, very large amount of spike protein. Um, and so essentially we were giving something that could produce the spike protein in infants under six months of age, which, as you said, the vaccine has never been tested on. And I want to provide a bigger picture context just so people understand generally how medicine deals with the issue of pregnant women and intervening with a medication or a vaccine. I mentioned before that women are uh, of childbearing age or pregnant women are generally excluded from clinical trials. So then you might wonder, well, how, how do we have any data to know whether or not pregnant women should take medications? Well, the basic approach to pregnant women and medications or pregnant women and vaccines is a kind of buyer beware approach. In other words, you inform women that this has not been tested as rigorously in pregnant women as it is in, in the rest of the population. And it hasn't been tested rigor rigorously to see if it causes harm to the fetus because that, those kinds of studies would be unethical, actually, putting, putting the, the pregnant woman or the fetus at, at risk. And so the general approach is if you have a serious medical condition, and the potential benefits of a medication or, a, you know, another intervention are significant, then you have to inform the women, well, the risks are a little bit unknown, right? We have some animal studies um, and we think it's safe, but here are the benefits and uh, we may want to cautiously deploy this in your case, right? But that's not... Sorry, let you finish. Yeah, let finish. Go ahead. One more thing on this. Generally, we use then medications that are 20 years old. Why? Because over time, people submit case reports if there are, you know, fetal problems or newborn baby problems or if there are problems in, in that particular population. And as reports accumulate, we may say, OK, this is not safe for pregnant women or as reports, no reports accumulate over 20 years and lots of people have used it in pregnancy. We might say, OK, this is looking more and more safe. Right. And that's why, you know, if I'm giving someone an antidepressant, I'm not going to pick a medication that just went on the market. I'm probably going to pick an older one um, because Aaron, we have more data. Aaron, on it Aaron, Aaron, this is true. I'm going to I'm going to jump. Use. Aaron, I'm going to jump in. And, and there's, I've just got this is probably because we've done a lot of spaces on this. This one ha is the most concerning based on the data that's being shared. And, and I will go to Eugene in a bit just to to, to kind of give a counter argument. Um, to balance it out. But just to go to you, Aaron, and Dr. Thorpe, um, again, if you don't mind, and Nick was looking into the study in the meantime in the back end, in the background. The, I want to go back to the point that James made regarding the data being manipulated to reduce the, 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 the to, to, so people are not concerned in terms of the miscarriage rate. Can you explain that again, Aaron, if you don't mind, or Dr. Thorpe? Um, for the audience on what was exactly manipulated. I think I understood it, but I want you to explain it again very briefly. And I want to hit on that specific point with Eugene afterwards. So Dr. Thorpe uh, or, or James or Aaron, Mike is yours. Yes, uh, it's, this is Jim Thorpe, uh, OBGYN maternal fetal medicine doc. And thank you very much. Aaron, your comments were excellent um, and, and spot on. I, I, I do want to say, that that um, there's there's no doubt when you look at the Shimabakuro article, uh, those were all uh, majorly conflicted authors. I, I suspect that that manuscript was was probably ghostwritten uh, by the by Pfizer or the pharmaceutical company, like many of New England Journal 
uh, and these corrupted medical journals are, just like the Lancet corrupted uh, with, with the Mandeep Mera article that uh, fraudulently uh, trashed uh, hydroxychloroquine. Um, these are these are bad, bad um, uh, contributors to lethal misinformation. So if we go back to the Shema Bakuro article, so it goes back to the point I was making earlier that a lot of people don't understand um, a lot of non-OBs. It's very important to differentiate, you, you know, look at the timing of losses. A miscarriage does not equal a fetal death. They are absolutely excluded. The definition of a miscarriage is 19 weeks and six days at midnight. It turns into a fetal death before midnight. It's a miscarriage. I know that's definitional and it's semantics, but it's very important. And different countries have different definitions. Okay. But this is the standard definition in North America. So when, when we look at what they did was they manipulated the data. They took 700 patients from their data set. Go look at the article. It's very, very difficult to tweak this out because it's buried so maliciously and flagrantly that it's hard to pick up except for somebody that, that has my expertise or another physician or statistician. Um, so that they took those 700 patients that got the vaccine in the third trimester, you know, after 30 weeks, after 28 weeks, it's impossible to have a miscarriage after 20 weeks. And they shifted those that denominator, they took the 700 out of the denominator from the third trimester and they put them in the denominator of the first trimester. That's called fraud. I could make an argument that that is third degree murder because they put that on the seal of the New England Journal of Medicine. They pronounced it was safe for the entire world when the miscarriage rate was 82%. 82%. It wasn't 13%. And for the love of God, even if it was 13%, that's way higher than it should have been. And I'm just to go back to that's a vSafe 1 data. When in the vSafe 2 data, by the uh, uh, subsequently published by Zouch and colleagues, you have the same, same ridiculous misinformation. They hide things, they manipulate things, and both of those authors have major conflicts of interest. I have zero conflicts of interest, okay? I'm being threatened physically, threatened professionally by coming out and speaking the truth, and I don't have a problem with that. I'm fine to, to be threatened. My thick skin is thick, but truth and my patient relationship is more important than my life and my job. And so this is fraudulent stuff that needs to be exposed. In the vSafe data, the government won't even release it. There's over 10 million patients in the vSafe data. It's very peculiar that they will only release 5% of the pregnant women's data. And the reason is obvious. Just like Pfizer tried to hide the 5.3.6 for 75 years, the government is trying to hide the horrible, horrible outcomes in pregnancy. So, so that if you look at if you look at Moderna versus Pfizer themselves, there's twice the chance of miscarriage, more than twice, with Moderna than there is with Pfizer. Why is that? 
and they acknowledge that. But if there's twice the miscarriage rate with Moderna, because there's 100 micrograms of mRNA in there, compared with a Pfizer, that might give you some clues. But the V-safe data is very damning, not only for pregnancy, but for the general population. You realize that 13% of that 10 plus million people in the United States of America that got that vaccine, 7% of them had to go to the hospital or the doctor, 7%. Another 6% had to stop working or stop going to school because of problems. Doctor, Dr. Thorpe, is I, not I, safe data. I, I, I want to go to Dr. Gu, because you, you've, you've mentioned a lot of statistics, especially the manipulated data. Uh, Dr. Uh, Eugene, can you respond to the specific points being made by uh, Dr. Thorpe? Because that's yeah, the first time we discussed them on the space. Thanks, Mario. Um, I do want to respond to the specific statistics that Dr. Thorpe was talking about. And also, there were a lot of claims and insinuations made during the space um, about you know, the mRNA, the lipid nanoparticles, um, the spike protein that it generates, uh, you know, directly damaging the ovaries or impacting fertility. Um, and there's so many things I just want to kind of go through as, as quickly as I can. Um, one, you know, I think Joanna gave a really good explanation of the um, hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis and how there's a, you know, really delicate and intricate interplay between the different hormones, you know, the follicle-stimulating hormone, luteinizing hormone, estrogen, progesterone, um, to, to um, that do this dance during the menstrual cycle and, and ovulation, right? And there are things that we already know from, you know, years and years and years of research and in medical literature that, you know, something like stress can actually affect the hypothalamic pituitary ovarian axis um, and cause delayed, you know, menstrual cycles and, and so forth uh, because there's a, you know, there's a hormone called CRH or corticotropin-releasing hormone that can suppress some of the gonadotropin-releasing hormones, right? So not to get too much into the specifics of that, but after you are vaccinated, you know, to COVID-19, it is known that the vaccination produces an immune response, and this can mimic some of the, you know, cortisol-releasing stress responses, and that can delay the menstrual cycle. Um, so, you know, I just want to put forth a plausible medical explanation for why we have seen, you know, this delayed menstrual cycle for people who are vaccinated. And then I do want to directly go and touch upon what Dr. Thorpe was mentioning with the statistics. And, yeah, and before, have, yeah, hey, so hey, Gene, Dr. Gene, Gene, this is Jim Thorpe, and I, I do want to make a, an important point. I, first of all, Gene, I, I really appreciate you coming on. And I think your points that you just made are very, very salient. But um, I, I do want to clarify this, since I am an OBGYN doctor, of, of 44 years um, from my clinical side, uh, um, I totally hear what you're saying. And I totally agree with you in the sense that um, in the pre-pandemic, these, uh, the hypothalamic uh, pituitary uh, adrenal gonadal access is really important. But let's, be, let's make this very, very clear. In my cycle story, Tiffany Parato and, and the CHD team that I'm working with um, and we published our first paper, oh, nine months ago. Let's, let's be really clear. The menstrual abnormalities, the catastrophic massive bleeding and clotting that we're seeing uh, last year and after uh, the vaccine rollout um, has nothing to do with stress. 
and and that's kind of throwing my patients under the bus and it's whitewashing uh, the whole scenario here. The, when when a woman, uh, her hypothalamic uh, pituitary gonadal axis uh, has, uh, is faltering and decompensates at menopause because she's run out of ovum, okay, they don't have this catastrophic bleeding. It's extremely rare. It doesn't happen. Uh, women who are in their reproductive age and are menstruating, have menstruated normally for their whole life, uh, I, um, and they get the vaccine or exposed to somebody with a vaccine and they have these massive abnormalities, you cannot whitewash that. I do agree with you, Gene, that before the pandemic, that the vast majority of menstrual, everything you said is absolutely true, sir. Uh, very clear. You're spot on. I 100% agreement. Before the pandemic, um, anxiety, stress, surgery, trauma, any of this stuff can cause slight alterations of the menstrual period of menses. And that's really benign. It's very rare that that's related to a cancer or something abnormal. So you're right to kind of a doctor or a researcher like yourself is it's okay to whitewash that and say, oh, it's fine. But for, you know, Spice or for anybody to any physicians or the AMA or ABOG or ACOG to make the or Fauci even to make these outrageous comments and throw my patients under the bus that are vaccine injured and discredit them and deplatform them. That is not acceptable. Uh, and that's not going to be allowed when I'm speaking because uh, you cannot uh, you cannot whitewash a potentially serious so, complication Dr. and say it's just stress. Uh, Dr. Thorpe, you know, um, so thanks for I'm, I'm glad that we can find some agreement between us. So that's number one. Number two, I, I do have a question for you in response to a lot of the uh, statistics that you you mentioned regarding uh, your research. You know, like the vaccines came out in December of 2020. So for, for three years or a little bit more than three years, they've been out. Right. Um, that's several pregnancy cycles, right, uh, for women. Um, and then more than, I think, 5.5 billion people worldwide have been vaccinated against COVID-19, right? Given those numbers and the number of years that the vaccines have been out, why haven't we seen on a large scale drops in fertility, uh, you know, massive rise in miscarriage? This is a gigantic, if you think about it, a gigantic study, right, around the whole world, more than 5 billion people vaccinated many chances for pregnancy cycles to, to occur. Why haven't we seen the deleterious effects that based on the statistics you're talking about, you know, no one should be born, but like, why do we not see? Oh, come that on, Eugene. That's, right that's, that's an obvious exaggeration that no one should be born. That's absurd. No, but, but the, that's you know, absurd. Dr. Thorpe wait was saying like Gene, 80%. Me, wait a minute. So there was me, one comment me, where he said let that me it was run more in effective here, than Gene? abortion pill. There, Gene, there is evidence. That, uh, uh, there is evidence that birth uh, rates have declined. So, Aaron, Aaron, let, go ahead, Doctor Thorpe. In all due respect here, uh, Gene, I, I do totally agree with what you're saying, but I, I want uh, some points of what you're saying. What you're trying to tell me is that, um, and when I say you, please don't take this personally, but the 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 stakeholders. You're defending the stakeholders 
who rolled out the broke the golden rule of pregnancy for 6,000 years. You never ever use a novel substance. You rolled it out. It was a fait complete for the pharmaceutical industry to push this regardless of the safety in my patients. And you did it. And now that it's done and all of the reproductive toxicity studies have formally also been fraudulent, they said it was safe in animals when they lied to us. And Sasha Latipova has the proof of that. And now you're saying, oh, it's safe because 13 Point five billion shots have been given in five point seven billion people. It must be safe. So you're you're really kind of what you're doing is very disturbing to me. And it's like the rest of the stakeholders. You're saying, oh, it's fine, it's fine that we didn't do any studies that we broke the golden rule of pregnancy for well, six thousand years. That's not well, fine. And Dr. don't Thor, defend the, the first caveat. I would say to what you're saying, you know. You said that for you know six thousand years, there's never been like experimental drugs pushed on pregnant women. I do want to correct that. You know, thalidomide was used for a morning sickness. No, you know, uh, that's rather ex- genetic. Yeah, excuse me, Gene. Um, excuse me. The, the thalidomide was not pushed out with false misinformation through the entire world in pregnant women. And I, I'm old enough. But it is a great example, long Gene. Enough to understand I mean, it's a. It's an interesting example that you chose. I, I well, I mean, the medical community is not innocent. You know, we've done a lot of wrongs in the past, right? So I don't want to whitewash that. I'm just saying I don't think that the vaccine rollout was a wrong. Uh, but like when Dr. Thorpe was saying that we've never done any wrongs in the past until you know whatever this thing, that's incorrect. Yes, I, I no, there's never ever ever been a rollout, a massive assault of the golden rule of pregnancy throughout the entire world. This is a most egregious, outrageous, and catastrophic violation of medical ethics in the history of humanity. Okay? This makes Pol Pot, this makes Hitler, and this makes several other killers throughout world history look like altar boys. This drug Doctor, and DES look like M and M's. But but see, that's too much. That the rhetoric there. That this is the problem where you and Steve Kirsch go too far in the rhetoric. Because the thing is, this they weren't deployed just for malign reasons. I mean, we we have to at least say that there is a pandemic. It's still ongoing. It is killing people daily. Well, wait a minute. I, wait a minute. I one one second, I thought, sir. I thought one, your president said there wasn't a pandemic anymore. Listen, one, one second. There I, is or there's I'm, not? Listen, I, I don't, I'm not party affiliated, so I don't even play those games. I'm a bioethics guy. I'm calling balls and strikes. And what I'm saying is, if you talk to uh, I- anyone in the are, state. Are you calling <laughs> balls and strikes for the pharmaceutical industry or no. for my patients? No, listen, we, we represent the same clients here, okay? What I'm saying, though, is that you can't isolate this and say, it, in fact, the, the variables are so confounded now, it's going to take a while for us to be able to differentiate harm from just vaccine only, harm from vaccine plus having gotten COVID, or there's, there's so many different iterations of, like in the, in the case and, of the vaccine. Gene, whose fault is that? 
in in the summer of 2020, I designed a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial, vaccine versus placebo, and it was bluntly rejected by the entire medical industry. Okay, that's the way you should have done it, using a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial. And by the way, Gene, do you know that in the history of the pharmaceutical industry and vaccinology, do you realize there's never, ever been a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled trial of vaccine versus placebo? Do you realize that? But, uh, Mary, before I go, it's just we can't, I mean, we, we do have to have balance here in saying this is worse than Pol Pot, this is worse than Hitler. I mean, but, but here's where I'll make my, this, I want to I wanna very specify that. It is worse than Hitler or Pol Pot or Stalin. And here's why it's worse. Their killing was uh, less than a fifth generation warfare. Their killing was not global. And everybody in the world, their region at the time, knew they were killers. Okay, you don't. So I don't think that's an exaggeration. I think that's a very, very fair. Hitler did not roll out and kill everybody or threaten everybody in the entire world. He threatened the Jews in Germany and killed six million of them. This is absolutely a preposterous way to point. There's much better ways to argue it. Use the data. But one of the things that I encourage... Well, I, I have used the pharmaceutical data that you provided me, and I clearly showed you that... Kyle, I'm not... Dr. Thorpe. Just the one final thing I just wanted to say, and then I can let you guys debate more, is I want to circle back to to what I mentioned, which is the vaccines have been around for more than three years, right? Um, more than 5.5 billion people have been getting the vaccine. Um, there should be then, if if it has such an impact on miscarriages, fertility, you know, what have you, then a study can be, you know, you can look at a retrospective study with such a large number of people and, and figure that out, right? Science is not about hiding the truth. I mean, politics might be about hiding the truth, but science is always about finding the truth. It might take some time, but the truth always prevails, right? Even way back then with Galileo, they tried to burn him at the stake for saying like the, what, the earth was not the center of the universe or something, right? But in the end, well, the truth always yeah. prevails, right? That, that's what science is about. It's not about politics. So, it, this vaccine has been around for quite some time, enough for many women to get pregnant and give birth. But, many, but you many, many we millions of women we were, were given the vaccine. So you cannot, why don't we you have cannot that evidence? Justify, you we cannot, have the evidence. Gene, you cannot justify <laughs> no, we, putting out a vaccine to the whole world of pregnant women and say it's probably safe. This is so flawed and so dangerous. That that, that would be a compelling with. argument in, in the very beginning of the rollout of the vaccines, right? Right. But now we're three years into it with billions of people getting the vaccine. So, so okay. that and argument we uh, know, no longer applies for better or worse. We know that the vaccine is deadly. We know it's deadly. We know it's not effective. In fact, it increases the risk of COVID-19. And number three, we know that it was never necessary. You never needed this in pregnancy. I, there is a massive amount of literature that proves that early effective treatment with uh, safe drugs that have been around for a long time are 99.99% effective. It was never necessary to roll out a vaccine except for the pharmaceutical industry and the medical industrial complex to make billions of dollars. It was never necessary in pregnancy. I used hydroxychloroquine. I've used it for 40 years in my pregnant women, even the first trimester. And the CDC and the FDA on their website, using the Wayback Machine, I can pull out 
their advertisements, their proclamations of just how safe hydroxychloroquine was in pregnancy, in the breastfeeding women, in the first trimester, and in children all over the world, and they were pushing it. And then all of a sudden, when they want to get an EUA to make a lot of money on a fake vaccine, they delete it all. This is what you're dealing with. These are all facts, Gene. Uh, all right. I think maybe we could we could introduce some more voices in the mix. Steve, it looked like before, you wanted to before, uh, yeah, but before, before, yeah, Steve, yeah, uh, Stephen, and then maybe yeah, go Dr. ahead, Darren. Dab, Mario. I'll let Steve jump in, and then Kyle wants to to kind of continue the discussion with Dr. Thorpe as well. So we'll have Steve and, and Kyle uh, jump in as well. Uh, and, and I want to kind of make the point. So Dr. Thorpe, before Steve jumps in, can I ask you a quick question? I'm just listening to sure. you and Dr. Gu go back and forth. So the point that Dr. Gu is making is he agreed with you that, or I think he agreed with you that the the way the vaccine was rolled out and the way the studies were done, there's a, a, a solid argument to be made against them. And, and you kind of pointed out the manipulation of data and uh, some of the numbers are concerning. And Aaron mentioned that a warning should be there. And Aaron, maybe you can touch on that point as well before going to Steve and Kyle. Uh, the, the point where Eugene and kind of Kyle jumped in is like we have, like it's already been three years and the, the, the numbers or the percentages in the data are not being reflected in the general population. And Eugene, do give me a thumbs up if I, if I got your point right, because I don't want to, uh, you know, get it wrong. Okay. So would you say, Dr. Thorpe, that that doesn't mean the way the vaccine was rolled out was corrected, that, that was correct. And that doesn't mean there isn't concerns that should be explored. And that doesn't mean there isn't concerns that will be there in the future. But would you say that, the the numbers in the studies, as Dr. Gu was saying, the numbers in the studies were not reflected in the general population as of yet uh, three years in. Again, I'm not justifying what was done in the way it was no, done. I just want no, to I, disag- I, I disagree with that statement. If you look at the study that we just published, and we published for the last three years, um, and I've attacked the American Board of OBGYN, the American College of OBGYN, the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine. You know, it's very, very clear. We use governmental data governmental data and we this is published okay we show uh looking at the COVID 19 vaccines for just that were just rolled out 18 months using the influenza vaccine in pregnancy as a control group there are very very concerning clear irrefutable data that comes out of that one quick, one more, one more quick question, Doctor Thorpe, before going to Steve, is um, why don't we have uh, a big spike in the data regarding miscarriage around the world? You do, you do, and to, you do, you absolutely do. There's, there's, there's miscarriages reported all over the world in investigators and physicians uh, and researchers that I've talked to on every continent. In Germany, you have a 14.3% drop in the birth rate. Uh, that's proven. In, in Norway, you have a 16% drop. In Sweden, you have a 10.4% drop. Um, and, and I could, in Germany, 14.3%. Uh, Bulgaria, um, we, we have Estonia, uh, Latvia, Portugal, Republic of Moldova, Russian Federation. We have disastrous, catastrophic 
uh, reduction of birth rates. And to Spice's point, she was actually very accurate and spot on. The birth rates have been ever so slowly dropping, uh, every a very subtle drop since the turn of the century. But there's a catastrophic drop beginning in 21 and 22 and 23. So, so before before Steve jumps in, because Steve, I want to give you the mic, uh, but uh, Kyle, I just want you to, to respond to, to Dr. Dr. Thorpe just to balance out the discussion. And regarding yeah. that data, is there is there a spike in data around the world regarding miscarriage? So I'd let you comment on this and we'll go to Steve. Okay, so it, I, I see I'm, I'm getting destroyed here in the, the comments. So let me be clear. This is part of the problem that we have right now is we have platforms like Twitter where by the by the very technological determinism the way that it's structured small amount of characters where you're supposed to be able to articulate yourself and make a complex point this is the place to have complex conversations we're talking about multipolar problems. We're talking about multivariate problems. So it's not reducible. What the good doctor, I'm in agreement with him. If anyone heard the first part of what I said, I, I, I open by saying this. If you heard what I said in other Twitter spaces, I've been highly critical throughout my career of pharmaceutical companies and researchers doing uh, very high risk research with very little oversight that could potentially present an existential threat. But what you are not allowed to do is to put in isolation the variable that is continuous, which is that COVID is still going on and people are still getting it. It's still a variable. And what you would say to me, or an argument that you could make to me that's reasonable, would be, yes, but it's attenuated and uh, it's not that big of a deal. But what I would say back to you is in the same way that we don't have all of the data on the vaccines, we are updating in real time the data that we have from the disease itself. Now, I want to be clear, any intervention for people listening, any intervention that you give to a healthy person, the safety bar must be very high. We did not get that safety data. We needed more than four months. We're in agreement there. But the kind of rhetoric about this is worse than intentional malicious homicide, genocide, is it's so far from. I mean, you, you're talking about mind reading. You're impugning people's motives. Um, I'm not saying they didn't fabricate or um, hide I, I data that they I should have been released. I, I, I but that's just saying, we've got if, to if get back to a sane place, if, doctor. If no, wait, saying, no. No, no, no. Let Wait me, a second. Let me just say, you, if, you got your people. Hold on a second, if, James. Listen to me. We have if, got if, to reel this back in. You're not helping by saying that. No, I no, agree. You know, listen. Hey, hey, listen, listen. You have, uh, and, and the industry has censored us for over three years. Who are you we talking have, about? I'm, I'm not part about, of the industry. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm making some points here. That the reason why this controversy is and why it's uh, a lot of people are saying a lot of very uh, things that are upsetting you is because they've been censored for three years. 
And what I want to say, if you're acknowledging (laughs) that we're in real-time information, then you have to accept the fact right now that it was always inappropriate. It was never acceptable to push this in pregnancy. So let's you and I agree right now that you and I together will call a moratorium on the use of this death shot in pregnancy. Can we agree to that? That is, I said, I literally said that when you know for a fact that the the vaccines that were authorized under an EUA to prevent COVID-19, which when Pfizer did their response to the Veritas drop, that was still in their data. They're still standing by the fact that the FDA, now the their, their vaccine was formally approved for the prevention of COVID-19. But at the point at which you know that that's no longer the case, the best you can hope to get out of the vaccine is symptom reduction, reduction in severity, prevention of hospitalization. Okay, so at that point, my argument is once you know you're not preventing COVID, whether contracting it or forward transmission, and there's any safety signal, then you pivot to a platform that is extremely safe. We should have had something in parallel. I agree. And one of the comments... Almost no one will make this point to you that in the United States of America, the richest country in the world, we have adopted this impoverished mindset and the lack of creativity is astounding. Even Cuba, who has a socialized medical care system, has iterated and updated their vaccine program. They used a much safer platform than us. They've had better outcomes than us if their data is in fact reliable. It's hard to get clear answers on that, but from the data that's been published, we do know that they're having better outcomes from us and less severe adverse events. So I'm with you in saying that, no, nothing like this, including thalidomide, none of that should be done in pregnant women. But you also, and Steve, go too far on the other end of the extreme. And what I'm saying to you is, We've got to have a country. We've got to have a world in which, listen, I have small children. I have a newborn that I'm about to go spend time with. So this is a very pressing matter for me. We need a world that is habitable, that is hospitable to life. And what I'm trying to say is you can't continue to pull at the fabric of society. I get that everyone's frustrated. I am too. It's upended my life. People that I know and love have died have been infected, and have had their lives ruined by COVID-19. I, I can, can, can I comment real quick on, on what... Uh, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying. And if if, um, if you agree with me right now to, to protect your beautiful bride and your beautiful family and the children uh, and the pre-born and newborns of this world, if you, if you are saying that we need to continually to look at the data... Um, then let's do it. I think I heard you say that you agree with me that there should be an absolute moratorium on the use of COVID-19 vaccines in pregnancy. Uh, so let's you and I agree with that. Let's make that announcement. I think that I'm going uh, further. Two, than, I'm going further in saying that we should adopt a safer platform because we don't yet know what the virus is doing. Well, what we do know, what we do know now here, and please acknowledge this. There's no need for the vaccine because now it's very clear 
that um, early treatment is 99.999% effective in saving lives. So it was never necessary. The mRNA platform is a dangerous platform. It never should have been implemented. It was implemented for some other reason. And that's why I stand by the statements that I've made that nothing like this in the entire world history by any other dictator can amount to this. It is egregious. It needs to stop, and it needs to stop now. James, would you, Dr. Thorpe, would you say, uh, before going to Steve, would you say that the damage of the vaccine outweighs the benefits of the vaccine, which means that the people dying from the vaccine outweigh the people that would have died from COVID? Absolutely correct. Far and I'm guessing Kyle and Kyle and Eugene, I'm guessing you stand on the position that you're on the opposing side of that argument. So this is where the big the, disagreement the, the is. Argument, the argument that I would make is this. Again, I said at the very beginning, when you are in a novel landscape where an airborne pathogen is being re- is it's, it's circulating widely and you don't know very much about it, you are operating under normative uncertainty. This is why we have to be smarter here. When you don't have any um, countermeasures, which is how all of this started, if you go back and look at barracks research in 2015 that's when those of us in the community knew there was a problem when they identified these bat coves and started doing experiments with them they found that even people who had had the the antibodies from the original SARS it those antibodies did not neutralize these viruses when they tried to use other types of vaccines on mice to prevent them from getting it not only did it not work, but it made the mice worse. And so it, it was clear from the publication that if something like this happened, which I tend to think that they expedited that and, and leaked it from the lab on accident. But still, when you're in a situation where you don't know what the pathogen is going to do, there is an argument. And I'm not saying I agree with it, people. I'm trying to get you to actually think in a complex way about a complex matter. If you don't have a countermeasure and you're afraid your populace might die or be disabled, then your risk-benefit ratio may be skewed towards will take more effective and less safe. Or if you're risk-prone, uh, I mean risk-averse, you might say we'll take something very safe but less effective. That's Kyle, what, I'm curious. Can, if you I, can I comment on something that Kyle said? I, I would, I would, I'm curious, Kyle, if you would accept the fact that to have that discussion has been entirely. You, you talked about the ripping through the fabric of society. That entire discussion that you're talking about, and I don't agree with all of your points, but they are points that can rationally be made and and argued. Those discussions, talking about ripping the fabric of society. When they have been twisted, as we have learned from how social media has entirely shut down any oppositional voices to what you said or any clarifying voices, that that is a greater rip in the fabric of society than what you hope would be there in terms of the tenor of the debate. Because, you know, when you get the, the tenor of the debate is always difficult 
in science. It was in Galileo's day. It was with Copernicus as well. And and, and now we're seeing uh, that was kind of the church getting itself caught up in something quite wrong. Now we're seeing the scientific community getting itself caught up in something wrong because of the way that it, this has been shut down. And when you're upset about the reactions that you're getting, I think you have to rationally and logically accept the fact that you're getting that pushback precisely because the fabric of society has been ripped and it would have been far less of a problem in the past than now had that discussion been allowed to be made. Because I, 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 think, I, think, I think that you want people to kind of back off a little bit and let you make your argument while Dr. Thorpe, Steve Kirsch, and some of these other guys, you say they're going too far – uh, but I what think that we went too far in shutting those to... voices down. No, 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 no. Listen, if you, I, I urge you, <laughs> listen to my remarks. Go and look at what I've been saying since 2020. I'm a, a very small account on Twitter. I'm a researcher and academic. Never, never did Twitter or anything like that until the pandemic started. And I saw misinformation being spread by people like the New York Times that were advocating for Chinese style lockdowns. And I thought this is this is unconscionable. We know that that's going to put the most vulnerable amongst us at risk. I'm actually much closer. I'm a very conservative bioethicist. I I don't what what I'm what I'm trying to say is like so I'll give you an an, an exact example is like I'm with you up until the point that we're having a conversation now, us. This conversation is not being censored by by you, me, or anyone else. And yet, in the conversation that we're having, someone is invoking Pol Pot and Hitler, and I'm not allowed to even suggest that that's too far. And the idea, the ghoulish nature of sort of taunting people on Twitter that have been vaccinated. Um, I just, I find that ridiculous because when you say that, that like you can keep tearing at the fabric, that's my point is there's no need. The doctor was making very logical points based on data and then uses hyperbolic rhetoric. Now I agree. People have been censored. Everything you're saying is I'm with you at some point though. I have to tell all of you, hey, look, there needs to be a world where people like me can live and our children can grow up. Like, I don't want to grow up in uh, I don't want my children to grow up in a, in a place where we're broken down by party lines uh, because. Kyle, keep... Can I just ask you who should be allowed rights to see the data that you you keep referring to? Everyone. Because as far as I know, Absolutely. when you search Google, Google is still censoring and suppressing that information from the general public. So no one here is allowed to even see the data. So I, listen, where can we find the data? I, I Listen, I actually advocate for a patient practitioner partnership. That's that's my view. Why? Okay. Why, 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 hold on. why Why? would you argue for that? What I'm arguing for is that we have this debate here like we're having, that Google allows that debate, that uh, YouTube allows uh, Project Veritas to 
throw out what is very acceptable investigative research that they've found and that that be talked about. See, the thing is, you talk about a disgust for a discussion about Pol Pot and these people, but what you're forgetting is that we we actually have something akin to to a Hitlerian approach to shutting down speech that has been revealed throughout the revelations of the Twitter files. We literally have a state of play where government intelligence agencies are still interacting with social media platforms to make a determination of what will be discussed. Now, the topic of this really relates more to what we're talking about with the vaccines, and I know we need to get back to that. But if you're going to come into that debate and say that there is a problem with the tenor of it, and not take into account, and, and then be upset with someone bringing up Pol Pot or whatever, but not recognize that we're seeing this standard shutdown through government agencies trying to control speech in countries taking place in this very country right now in a scary way, in a concerning way. You got to understand that's part of this issue. And substantively, to your point, I think the points that uh, Dr. Thorpe are making are entirely value, valid. He is being more than gracious to Dr. Gu on this when there's real disagreement. And, but yet, don't, don't go putting that down. What he, he, this is a guy who is an obstetrician who works in precisely the area that what Project Veritas revealed in this last video drop is critical. That discussion must be had at whatever tenor that is there, because if we don't get to the answer of this, then we are going to have women suffering, and then we have other aspects of this thing where there's real suffering taking uh, place. Okay, so we so got to get to that. Just hold on, hold on, everybody. Uh, I want I want uh, Mario to, to comment, because I know, Mario, you've been trying for a while. Then I would like Kyle to respond, because Jim was addressing Kyle. Um, and then we'll continue. I see Tara with a hand up, and Aaron tried to jump in. But Mario, before you go, I do want to share the breaking news. And Steve... I was going to Steve for a while, so Steve is actually the most important to go after Mario and Kyle. Uh, but I do want to just mention breaking news. It's been a while. I haven't mentioned it because the, the, the flow was going really good. But there's two uh, pieces of breaking news. We won't address them in a space. It's not important enough to do a space about, at least not yet. But I'm covering it in a thread. So the balloon over the U.S. seems to have been shot down. Not confirmed yet, but it seems to have been shot down. And there's a video I shared in the thread. Uh, of the of the of the aftermath. That's number one, and then number two would be there seems Pentagon says, and the the sources rose alerts who will be joining us in the space if we do decide to cover it, but it's not worth it yet. There is a second balloon apparently in Latin America that the Pentagon referred to a, a, a spy balloon. So not sure they haven't shared more information whether it's Chinese etc. But that's all the information we have. But otherwise we'll continue the discussion. Mario, I know you've been trying to speak for a while. Then we'll go to Kyle to respond to Jim. And then we'll go to Steve because we've been trying to go to Steve for a really long time and he's been here for a long time as well. And then we'll go to Tara and Aaron. Go ahead, Mario. All right, I, I'm going to jump in. The, the uh, Department of Defense uh, is coming out and saying that the uh, the balloon over Montana has not exploded and has not been shut or not been shot down. So we're not exactly sure. Fox News also reported earlier that there was an explosion in the sky over Montana and it was potentially the balloon. So, so we, we don't really know. Things uh, Things change quickly here. Yeah. Um, so just wanted to pick off on, on something that Kyle had said, um, you know, an assessment he made in terms of, you know, the data that we have and medical data we have in the U.S. versus Cuba. So I, I want to make a it's not a scientific point by any means, but a, a media point 
which is we all know that Cuba doesn't have a free press. There's no free press. There's no investigative journalism that occurs just that occurs like in the United States, like Project Veritas and other media organizations. They can hold um, this sort of data, um, you know, investigate the data, hold government officials accountable for what they say. So I don't, you know, necessarily know of citing Cuban government data where there's only one state-owned paper called Grandma in in Cuba is really an, an accurate way to make a comparison between health initiatives in the United States and Cuba. Just And that goes not for only Cuba, but any other country that doesn't have a free press or a state-owned media only. That's It's a fair point, and that's why I caveat it by saying if the data is reliable, but it was published in our best journal. So that's why it's worth at least thinking about. The whole point of me using them is to simply say that what we should have done if we had been smart was to continue warp speed. Why in the world did we stop it? Because not only we we had momentum, and instead of stopping the moment you had something good enough, listen, the whole narrative, and and to, to Jim, I appreciate all the points that you're making. I'm actually more aligned with, with you guys than you think. I'm not for censorship or, or any of that. I do think that we need to be balanced. But let me ask one question to the entire group here, Mario. And it's this. Because I think a lot hinges on this. Do you think that SARS-2 was... Did it emerge from a lab or did it emerge naturally? Because there's a different decision tree there for me. Again, now your body doesn't know the difference. If, if something was created in a lab or if it came from an animal through an intermediate host. Your immune system responds the way it responds, right? But what I, what I am trying to point out is there are many of you, if not most of you, who might agree that the origins of the virus are from a lab leak. Now, if you think that, one would also think that the rational response to that is to be very humble, in the presence of it and say there's probably things about this that we don't quite understand because the very first emails that were exchanged between Fauci and his colleagues on the nature of of the evolution of the virus, they said this was I think it was Christian Anderson who was like, there's something about this that doesn't look evolutionarily probable. So from the very get there's something novel about the virus that we don't even think you get there logically through a process of evolution. So the decision tree needs to be, do you think this is a bioweapon? Can I just say something? I've been waiting a really long time to speak. I think we're getting really off course here. And the issue was Pfizer concerned over female fertility. And I'm just putting a suggestion, Mario. I don't mean to step on your toes, but maybe we can have some of the doctors who are treating COVID, treating vaccine injuries, not, you know, come up and kind of get back to that topic, maybe take a seventh inning stretch. Uh, sure. I, I do want to go to Steve because I know he's been waiting as well. And Aaron did message me. So we agreed me and Aaron will go to Steve 
and we'll go to Tara uh, for a quick question, I guess, or comment, and then we'll go to you, Dr. Deb, because you've been waiting just as long as Steve from the beginning. So, Steve, um, I'll go to you. It's been a good discussion, and, and I think that kind of summarizes what Kyle is saying, and, and Dr. Thorpe, that kind of summary goes to you, is addressing you earlier, is that he agreed with many of the points that you were making, a lot of the points based on data, and he agreed with your concerns as well. Um, I think his, you know, where he, he started disagreeing is when it went to the extreme, um, a bit afterwards and comparing it to the Holocaust and to Hitler, which maybe comes out of frustration and you're trying to get a point across. Um, and I don't want it to diminish the important point you made earlier, which I said is one of the most important points we've made into this, into, in the space. But I'm, I'm sure you understand that a lot of people would, would, would kind of disagree with, with that point rather than the substance of what you're saying. So that kind of sums it up, Kyle. I don't know if I got it right, uh, but I do want to go to Steve, who's been waiting for a while. Steve, good to have you. Yeah, uh, thank, thanks, Mario. Um, so can you guys hear me okay? I'm on my earphones. Perfect, yes, perfect. Awesome. Okay, so um, I've written about uh, miscarriages. Um, I've interviewed uh, nurses. Um, I've talked to people at IVF clinics. Um so my Substack, if you look at IVF clinics, uh, I wrote a story about how miscarriage rates doubled after the vaccines rolled out, not after COVID rolled out, but as soon as the vaccines rolled out, these IVF clinics, um, I got a call from one of them where they said, hey, our miscarriage rates doubled after the vaccines rolled out. And they said that they had a researcher uh, tasked to, to look at that. They, you know, like, why is this happening? And the researcher considered everything except for the vaccine, because as we know, the vaccines are safe and effective. And the researcher came back and said, we, we have no clue as to why this is happening. But again, they looked at everything except for the vaccines. Now, I talked to a nurse who was, um, uh, I asked, uh, and this, this interview is on Rumble, um, and she said that miscarriages were running 50% higher after the vaccines rolled out and fertility was down 50%. And that, um, that interview with that nurse is on Rumble. So this is what's happening in the ground and people in the industry. This is not me saying any of this. This is documented from fertility clinics, from, uh, from nurses who, who work in the, the field. Uh, what's really concerning is the Shivan Bakuro paper. Now, they said that, well, we don't have final data yet uh, in that paper that was studied. They said, yet, you know, preliminarily, you know, we're seeing, you know, this amount of, of uh, you know, the 12%, you know, that we hear. And, and Jim is absolutely right about how they um, uh, manipulated that. But you see, there is never, as far as I know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but there has never been the follow-up where we finally found out what happened to all the women who were pregnant. Now, if there is, um, I'm, I, I'd love to write about that. But as far as I know, they basically dropped the ball. And I suspect that they dropped the ball because the data was so bad. And that's why we never heard about it. Because otherwise, why wouldn't we have heard about, hey, here's the final result. So, so everybody would know. Um, as far as the vaccine goes, I, I can't find a benefit for reducing infection. Uh, I can't find a benefit for reducing hospitalization or, or deaths. In fact, in the Pfizer's own phase three trials, the six-month study that was, was published, it showed that hospitalization actually increased. 
So if you look at all-cause hospitalization for people who got the vaccine, that was actually higher than the placebo group. All-cause death for people who got the vaccine was higher um, in the vaccine group than in the placebo group. In other words, the claim of hospi- that it reduces hospitalization and death, it, it didn't show up in the Pfizer trial. Now, the Pfizer trial had 44,000 people in it. And basically, you could say, oh, well, the numbers were too small. Fine, the numbers were too small. So in other words, the numbers are so small that nobody has been able to measure them accurately. But as far as we can tell, these numbers from various studies look like, gee, the Cleveland Clinic study clearly showed the more doses of the vax you get, the higher your your um, uh, probability that you will be infected is. And of course, we have other hospitalization and, and, and death numbers. In fact, I'm involved in a half a million dollar bet with someone that these vaccines have killed more people than they, they've saved. And what's interesting is that nobody, even the people that say, I don't know, the thumbs down or what, what Spice is doing here, but Spice, you know, hey, if, if you disagree with me, then why don't you join in? There's only one guy in the world that will challenge me on this. And that's that's surprising because the drug companies don't want to challenge me on the bet. I'm basically saying your product doesn't work. And why aren't the drug companies coming to defend their own product? Now, I posted to the room here, the Germany chart. Um, it's up on, uh, if you scroll through, there are three articles or four articles, uh, I guess now. Um, but there are a couple of posts from Jiki Leaks. And it shows you the Germany uh, data. Now, that should be really concerning to people because it's a nine sigma event that the birth, the, the birth rates in Germany for the first quarter, and it's comparing first quarter birth rates, it went down um, by somewhere on the order of 10,000. And, it, it, and the, the standard deviation is, is about 1,000. So we're talking a nine sigma event in Germany. Now, I would love it if uh, Dr. Gu um, or, um, let's see, or Kyle uh, w- can explain how we got the nine sigma do- drop in birth rate in Germany in the first quarter of 2022. So, so, what, what, so what we'll do, what, so, what, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Steve. I'll, I'll, okay, I'll, I'll let you finish off and then I'll go to Dr. Gu to respond to you. Awesome. Great. So, um, so you talk about the, um, so, and, and, and finally, the, the thing that's most troubling to me is the lack of data transparency on this. You know, if this is truly a safe and effective vaccine, then they should show us the numbers. All we need is the death, the, the, the age of death, the date of death, and when the person was vaccinated. And with, with just that data, we will be able to prove to the entire world that these vaccines are causing death, which means nobody should be taking them. Now, I have asked for that data from lots of places, and nobody wants to give it to me, but it should be public data because there's no privacy concerns on, on just knowing the age, the date of death, and their so, vaccination record. So okay. the, fact, the fact that uh, – I'll just finish with this point. Go ahead. The okay. fact – the fact that we do not have data transparency should be troubling to the entire world. And no organization, no university, no state, no nothing 
should be mandating these vaccines or even telling people that they should be vaccinated without having the data transparency so that we can look at the numbers. Because once that that data that I just said, once that data is revealed, there will no there will no longer be a debate. It will be very obvious to people what is going on. And the fact that we're not having that data means that these vaccines are not safe because if they were, they would be uh, rolling out that data with a red carpet and showing people that vaccines are safe, but they're hiding it. And that pretty much tells you everything you need to, to know. And every doctor in this room should be requesting the data because it's about the data and what the data shows. And let's see the data. And I hope we can so, so all agree on that. Dr. Gu, I'll let you I'm respond. And, and, and Dr. Gu, um, I want to say one thing for the audience. A pinned tweet above. It's on my profile as well. We decided we'll very likely do the space on the balloon because the, the new balloon being spotted. The defense um, defense department saying the balloon was not shut down. I know it's irrelevant to this conversation, but we are getting more reports and information. So it's getting li- more and more likely that we will do a breaking news space on that story in the next 30 to 60 minutes. So I just want to tell that to the audience. In the pinned tweet above, it's also on my profile. I'll retweet it on my profile. Um, you could go there and register, set your reminder so you get reminded if we end up doing the space. I'll just do the, I'll retweet it now. So as for the audience, Dr. Gu, I'll let you respond to Steve. I think it was a great discussion. I'll let you respond to these points he made. Then we'll have Spice and Dr. Deb um, wrap it up. Um, and I'll thank all the speakers, Dr. Thorpe, Kyle did an incredible job, and then Jim, Nick, Aaron moderating as well. But Dr. Gu, I'll let you respond quickly to Steve before going to Spice. Mario. <laughs> Thanks, thank Mario. Oh, sorry, um, go ahead, Spice. So, Spice, you were jumping in. Oh, no, let Dr. Deb go before me, and I could say... Yeah, yeah, definitely. And Dr. Deb could close it out. It's totally fine. Sure, no problem. Thank you so much. Yeah, Dr. Gu, I'll let you respond to Steve before going to Dr. Deb. Yeah, perfect. So I do want to respond to Steve's comments about birth rates, and I think you mentioned something about Nine Sigma and, and birth rates in Germany. Um, even way before the COVID-19 pandemic, way before the vaccines were rolled out, Birth rates, especially in industrialized nations like you know Germany, Japan, um, you know United States, wh- wh- wherever you, you have it, have been you know on a decline because I think you know we have the economic incentives to delay childbirth, um, and that you know obviously has impacts on fertility, and, and that has nothing to do with the vaccines or COVID nineteen. There are many other factors at play that could be impacting fertility, um, and then. For your Nine Sigma study, Steve, are you able to pin that here so that we can all take a look at the data? I want to make sure it's yeah, not like a it, preprint study it, or, it, or something. It, 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 it's up. Um, it's up there uh, at the top. Yes, yeah, just before. You, it's you, one yeah, of the yeah, pin you, tweets. You, yeah. you, you, you should you should click on it, okay? Because this is not a steady drop like you're talking about. This is uh, a they fell off a cliff. This is a nice yeah, if you can Dr. Gu, if you can actually go through it because we can maybe address that particular uh, particular study in the, or the, those that particular data in the next space so if you can go through it Dr. Gu, and just DM me if you have any questions I can connect you to Steve as well we'll go to to Dr. Deb you've been waiting extremely patiently thank you so much Dr. Deb the mic is yours Thank you, Mario. I wanted to um, thank you for this great space. And I've been in so many of your wonderful spaces. And I really appreciate that you give us this opportunity and you spend so many hours and work so hard at this. So thank you. I want to thank Project Veritas. 
um, for finally um, uncovering what a lot of us doctors who have been treating COVID from the beginning knew. Um, and so I had so much to say to before, but now, you know, I might be a little uh, fragmented from all of this. But anyway, what I wanted to say is that I, I, I'm a, a pulmonary critical care physician. I've been doing that for over 20 years. I have been treating COVID for over two and a half years, both in person and online on telehealth. So we've been seeing, so what this guy, um, uh, Walker says on all of these Project Veritas um, tapes, the three that we've seen so far, um, we he, he his credibility to me it matters. But the truth is, like I said, for us us doctors and clinicians who have been treating this and seeing this firsthand, we already knew all of this that they're saying. So it's it's completely really verifiable in the clinical space, in my opinion. Um, the problem is that we were censored for so long and not only were we censored, the people, who, the people, the publications, the media that was censoring us, they weren't telling the truth. So we, so there was a huge, huge divide. Um, so I also wanted to say quickly about, um, the informed consent. Well, what I want to say is being that we've treated so many COVID patients and have had so much success, 99.9% uh, success rate. There are very, this, this is a complex issue, COVID vaccines for us doctors, researchers, clinicians to figure out the whole mechanism, the pathophysiology so that we can address it and treat people correctly and have good outcomes and keep people well. But it's really right. It be, also becomes a very simple situation. And what I mean by that is we have safe ways to treat COVID. We have had them for over, for, probably, I mean, I've been using them for over two and a half years. When you have a treatment, there is no reason, even in the EUA, there were like four things that um, make something um, the EUA applicable. One of them is if there's, is that if there's no treatments, we have treatments. So there should be no EUA and no vaccine needed. And at this point, it it, we've only seen so much harm, these poor vaccine injured. Um, so, and the other thing is about informed consent. So we've known about the menstrual bleeding. Women, no, people weren't given proper informed consent. Pfizer not sharing that is making no informed consent. And therefore, people did not have the proper information to make their choices. I, I, I also agree hugely with James, Dr. James Thorpe. I do, if any OBs or any doctors have pushed this vaccine on pregnant women or children, especially, I think it's negligence and it's malpractice. But I would like to yield the rest of my time to Dr. Kim Bass, who actually is OBGYN and has the menstrual data, and maybe then we can close out. And thank you. Would again, love, yeah. So, Dr. Deb, if you can connect me um, to the panelists you're recommending, it would be great. Um, if you could DM me the username, it would be great. Okay, um, Dr. Thorpe, can you send me that? We'll, yeah, Dr. Thorpe would be great if you can. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you. I'll let you get that from Dr. Thorpe. Deb, I'd just um, like to give her the rest of the time because sure. I think she has really important yeah. information. We, we'd, I'd love. I'd love to. Mario, could, that would be. Yeah, that would be I great. Know she yeah, reached out to me, but I'm not seeing the speaker request on. 
on my end. And maybe while we're waiting, Mari, to bring her up, no, I we can try to yeah, summarize. Aaron, before uh, before you summarize, of... Aaron, I would like you, I would, I would love you because you, you're. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you. So, yeah, Aaron, you, you give great Mark, balanced summaries. Uh, yeah, I know, Spice, Spice. I know, I know. I know. That's man. what I'm about to do. So, that's okay. So, so what I want to do now is, is Dr. Deb, the panelists you're recommending, we can bring them in the next space. Because um, we do have to jump off to, to prepare for the for the potential uh, space for the breaking news, but I do want to give the mic to Spice, and then Aaron would be great at ending the space with a with a summary on both sides of the argument. He's really good at doing that. So I think Aaron, your summary would be great to wrap up the space, just for the audience to kind of get a full overview of what was debated today, an objective outline, um, so they can go out and and you know. Uh, make their decisions uh, but before that I will give the, the mic to Spice to respond to Deb and, and make her final points uh, to balance out the discussion and then we'll go to Aaron um, to wrap it up Spice the mic is yours oh thank you no it's actually this is for Kyle like he just really resonated with me so much has been said I mean I left you know to do something and I come back and the conversation you know went every which way totally fine um, Kyle so you mentioned about, you know, you were concerned about breastfeeding your child and about the vaccine. Um, I mean, look, all I could say is that if I was your provider and you came to me with these concerns, the messenger RNA, it's a it's dead. OK, it goes in your body and you create antibodies. The best way to have your child safely build up antibodies is to get the antibodies through the breast milk. So all I want to tell you is I want to congratulate you on your baby boy. I sincerely, a child is a blessing. And I just hope you could speak with your doctor about the benefits of breastfeeding and that you could just sleep well at night because I just, you know, want you to make a really good informed decision from choosing breast milk over formula you know and and, and that's really it i mean i enjoyed this conversation thank you guys for having me uh dr thorpe i hope you could send me the original article uh, research study that you were talking about i have a lot of problems thank you i will yeah. I, yeah, and please. also with regard to breastfeeding i want to be very clear um there are now three cases kyle just to uh, I, I pray blessing and peace and health and safety on your family. But I, I'm aware of three cases in which moms were breastfeeding and were vaccinated. And immediately thereafter, their newborns died. Uh, two of them were in very close proximity to time. And the other one had an immediate reaction and extended. Thought, would, would three be a small data set, though? Three is a very small the, data set. I don't, I don't want can't. to diminish the importance. I don't want to diminish the importance of it. Just wanted to kind of ask that question. It's a very small, and and but it goes to Steve Kirsch's point. Why aren't they being? Why are they not being transparent with the data? Why have they not? If they have all the safety data, why are they not giving us all of the? V-safe data. They refuse to do that. And also, I have incontrovertible proof for you and for the entire audience um, that's listening is that COVID-19 in of itself does not cause stillbirth. How can I prove that? Okay, I can prove that to you by looking at the vital statistics of the United States of America. Uh, the most recent fetal death or stillbirth data that we have 
is from 2020. Interestingly, they haven't reported 2021 yet. But in 2020... Your mic, your mic, mic, James. I don't know what's happening to it. Uh, You're a bit too close to your mic, I think. In 2020, the stillbirth, when uh, 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 hundreds of thousands allegedly died from COVID-19, probably did, uh, but the stillbirth rate went down in 2020. It was down to 5.73 fetal deaths per thousand births in the United States. And that was down from the three prior consecutive years, 2017, 2018, and 2019. If you uh, aggregate those three years, it went from 5.84 to 5.73. So that is proof that COVID-19 in of itself does not cause stillbirth. Hard to uh, refute. To... Now, now that uh, Dr. Uh, Thorpe just, just stole my name, that's okay, Dr. Thorpe. Kyle. All right. So I, let, let me. Uh, yeah. And Aaron, do you want to right get. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Before you yeah, wrap, maybe give Kyle last. Point, before I point myself, but I just want to yeah. make a few a few observations. Um, I thought it was very interesting, first of all, um, when Kyle and uh, Dr. Thorpe were uh, going back and forth that as far as I could tell, they were very, very close, um, both on the policy question about what should be done now with the vaccine and on concerns about vaccine safety and on concerns about medical ethics. And yet the fact that they were so close on those uh, highly polarizing questions um, didn't necessarily come across in their back and forth because we had the issue of, of rhetoric, right? And how should we characterize either the harms or the potential harms uh, that may be happening? And, I think that is a function of what we've all endured over the last three years and the fact that one side of these debates was suppressed, censored, and silenced. Um, but I think it, we also have to take into account uh, the audience for these conversations. We always need to be think, thinking about not just the people that we're talking to among the speakers, but the other you know, many thousands of people here in the audience and um how they're understanding and how they're interpreting what is being said. Um, so we have a group of people, for example, that got the vaccine and, you know, may, may be ambivalent about their choice to get the vaccine. They may have, they may have doubts that they've nurtured. They may even have regrets uh, and wondering, you know, how this is going to impact them uh, or in their health and potentially their families in the future. When you talk about fertility, and I think we need to be mindful uh, when we're talking about the safety issues, while not downplaying the potential safety concerns, also uh, just uh, just being very cautious and nuanced about presenting the data as accurately as possible uh, so as not to cause unnecessary alarm. Um, because when we talk about harms from a medication, we're not necessarily referring to everyone who took that medication or everyone taking that vaccine having a problem. I mean, a, a serious rate of adverse events may be on the order of 2% uh, or 3%, which is many, many people when billions of people have gotten the vaccine. Um, but, um, you know, but when, you know, people don't tend to reason statistically, they tend to reason through stories. Um, and that's why, that's why clinical anecdotes can be, uh, powerful 
getting people's attention. Um, but they also, those also have to be appropriately contextualized for the audience. Now we have, we have others in the audience who personally were harmed by these vaccines, um, who may themselves have experienced, uh, fertility difficulties that they are quite convinced, uh, were connected to the vaccines and may very well have been connected to the vaccines. And they have understandable anguish. Uh, not only because of what has happened to them, but the fact that, you know, when they try to talk about it, when they try to share it on social media, not, not to even create policy change, but just to, just to get help, just to find out are other people suffering from this? And, you know, have they found doctors willing to treat it? And what can we do to help them? They were shut down. And so, you know, we have people who have been wounded and harmed, um, by what's happened over the last three years. Uh, both by the censorship and potentially by these medical products and potentially by, by other things that have, that have gone sideways. Um, and so I, it, it's hard to keep all those folks in mind when, when we're debating these issues. And obviously, you know, you're going to say things that are not going to please everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm, I'm conflicted about the appropriate rhetoric as well, because on the one hand, uh, when I hear comparisons to Hitler and, and Pol Pot, that that tends to impute intentionality on um, people that uh, that were involved in the mass vaccination campaign. And, that, you know, in my own view, the mass major- vast majority of the people, uh, some people definitely are guilty of fraud and malfeasance over the last three years. But I think the vast majority of health care professionals were well-meaning. Um, now, we know that well-meaning people can be involved in things that are very, very damaging. Uh, uh, you think of Hannah Arendt's uh, account of the what she called the banality of evil uh, in her study of the of the Third Reich in, in in the book Eichmann in Jerusalem. Many many ordinary Germans participated unwittingly or out of cowardice or for any number of reasons in things that turned out to be atrocities. Um, so so I I think we do have to be careful about that rhetoric in terms of imputing motives to people. Um, no one likes being accused of being a mass murderer on par with Adolf Hitler or, or Joseph Stalin for understandable reasons. But on the other hand, when I look at, at the data that uh, Steve pulled up, and that's Germany is one country. I've seen, I've seen those same uh, charts on, on birth rates in several other European countries. That how, about, how about the U.S.? How, how, how about the U.S., Aaron, birth rates in the U.S.? Well, I, I, I don't know that we have that data out yet from the u.s for 2022 um so and apparently we if if james is correct we don't have the 2021 data on stillbirths either and so i'm very very eager to get that data 2021 2022 uh birth rates and stillbirths and miscarriages i haven't seen it doesn't mean if you see if that data if that data comes in and and we don't see so in europe and germany did we see a, a a anomaly is it that big of an anomaly, and, and how are the numbers? Oh, yeah. compare, how do they look I historically? I definitely think it's it's an anomaly. An, an anomaly, and the point I was going to make is actually, if that if that turns out to be a consistent pattern, uh, that's a pattern that screams for an answer. Um, it, it's a pattern. It's a it's a big big red flag. It's the kind of thing that requires strong rhetoric. <laughs> so that's why I say I'm torn because I think that some of the but stuff is it, is, is seeing, it also, but just sorry, Aaron, just about the data, is it a historical anomaly or is it just in like recent years or compared to relative to last year or two years ago? 
Uh, it's it's a it's a historical anomaly in in the sense of just a, a massive drop from one year to the next that clearly d- is not following a multi year trend, right? So it's analogous to the data that we've seen on all cause. And could it and could it be and Eugene could it, sorry could it be Aaron what Eugene mentioned that it could be other factors linked to COVID but not the vaccine itself? It could be COVID, it could be the lockdown, or it could be the vaccine. It could be too ma- too many factors. To make conclusions, or is it? Would you say it's conclusive enough as is? I, I would say that you could you could put several hypotheses into the mix, and then you have to ask yourself which is the most plausible hypothesis, and and how do we how do we confirm or disconfirm that hypothesis with full scale, robust, fully transparent research as soon as possible, and in the meantime, if that seems like the most plausible hypothesis. What do we do about it? Um, and I mean, my own personal view, I don't want to speak for anyone else on the panel, is the most plausible hypothesis is that we did something totally novel in 2021 to women of childbearing age. Uh, and that was vaccinate them with a novel technology that hadn't been used before. Are there other potential explanations for that? Yeah, there are. Um, but, uh, but that seems to me to be the most plausible explanation. So, so sometimes strong rhetoric is necessary um, to, to get people's attention and to try to contextualize things in terms of um, the level of harms that, that may be occurring. Um, at the same time, I am sympathetic to people who push back against the, uh, the Hitler and Stalin analogies um, because that was a regime that was clearly and intentionally um, murdering people with with willful uh, intent and without any equivocation. But I just think I, I just think it, yeah, it does come from like censorship causes a lot of frustration that we haven't seen the long term negative effects of censorship yet. And there was an argument being made earlier that this is I think Jim made that argument that this is the real damage, long term damage from what happened two years ago with COVID. But I do. So Aaron, I think it was a great discussion. Um, I know there's things happening in the background yeah. that force us to, to end the space earlier than we could have because we could have continued this for another couple of hours. Um, but we do want to see what's happening with the uh, spy balloons. A lot of people are asking questions. So we'll see what we do there. Otherwise, it was a great discussion. Nick, Jim, um, thanks for organizing the panel, helping moderate, and Aaron for jumping in as well. Uh, Dr. Thorpe, um, so James, Stephen, uh, Kyle, and all other panelists, Deb, um, and Spice, thanks a lot for coming on the panel. It was a real pleasure to have you all. We will look any data that you did mention throughout the space. Please do send it through. You can DM it to me because I do want to prepare it for the next discussion so we can at least take a step forward and, and maybe there's new data that comes in and we can continue that discussion. I think the the point of female fertility for me seems to be the biggest concern short term and I think the one that needs to be addressed the most. So congratulations, you know, well done for Project Veritas for uh, bringing this to our attention. And uh, I think that's reflected by the executive at Pfizer, Jordan, mentioning that particular problem specifically, that a problem that could be of concern to Pfizer or is already of concern and that they're looking into it. And so we don't know what they know, what they don't know. And I'm not sure Veritas have more to share. They dropped out, dropped out of the space about half an hour ago. Um, but we'll, I'll DM them, ask them if they've got more to share. We'll obviously cover it in a space. And I'm sure they'll do spaces as well covering those um, – covering whatever new findings they have. Any space that we do will always be balanced as we did today. It was a great discussion. Thank you all. We'll see you again soon. And if you do have any questions, put them in the comments, DM them to me. 
And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. See you in a few minutes or hours if we do that China spy balloon space. If hopefully nothing happens, we don't do it because it doesn't seem to have been shut down, by the way. Nick was just telling me there's reports that there is no explosion. So maybe still in the air with another one in Latin America. So hopefully nothing happens so we could take a rest, a bit of a break today. Otherwise, if there is something worth covering, we'll be here. Thanks a lot, everyone. Bye-bye.